I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran, and this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month, Highlander. From the dawn of time we came, moving silently down through the centuries, living many secret lives, struggling to reach the time of the gathering, when the few who remain will battle to the last. No one has ever known we were among you, until now. It's a kind of magic. It's a kind of magic, a kind of magic. How do you make the perfect 80s action movie? If you could distill the B-movie exploits of an early Arnold Schwarzenegger film with the production value and European charm of a De Laurentiis film, add the visual sensibility of the then-nascent art of the music video, and douse it all with the balls-to-the-wall rock-and-roll thunderfuck soundtrack from one of the greatest bands in history, you'd end up with 1986's Highlander. Directed by Russell Mulcahy, an Australian music video prodigy, and written by UCLA film student Gregory Wyden, Highlander is the story of Connor MacLeod, an immortal being from 16th century Scotland, now living in present-day New York. He is one of a disappearing race of immortals who have lived throughout history unknown to the rest of humanity. Vulnerable only to decapitation, they duel by sword point to be the last immortal alive who wins the prize. Once an immortal cuts the head off of his opponent, he experiences the quickening, a magical transference of the knowledge and powers of the slain. In the end, as the slugline says, there can be only one. The concept was, for the time, a wholly original idea, a genre mashup of a time travel movie, epic romance, gritty neo-noir mystery, swashbuckling adventure, and raw 80s action flick. Nearly unknown French actor Christopher Lambert starred as the lead character McLeod, but the true casting miracle was James Bond himself, Sean Connery, playing the role of Ramirez, fellow immortal and mentor to McLeod. And perpetual bad guy face Clancy Brown truly shines in his role as the sadistic Kiergan, in contention for one of the greatest villains in all of cinema history. Highlander is, by my estimation, a near-perfect action movie, with a healthy dollop of violence, cheap laughs, and a kinetic visual style that was almost unseen for feature films of that era. McLeod's story told in parallel with his past lives is an intriguing concept. The otherworldly sounds of swords clanging, the inventive scene transitions between time periods, and of course, that old Spanish peacock, Sean Connery. It's a basic genre piece that's surprisingly ambitious in its scope, as well as its execution. And add to that the epic sonic backdrop by Queen, which rockets it to the status of screen legend. The film was, as all great genre films usually are, a box office flop, failing to regain its $16 million budget. But the late 80s were the dawn of the golden age of video rentals, and the film built up a feverish fan base on VHS and cable television, both in America and Europe. So deafening was the cry of its hungry fandom that Russell Mulcahy returned in 1991 to direct the first sequel, Highlander 2 The Quickening, with Lambert and Connery reprising their roles. It was a little odd considering Connor McLeod apparently killed the Kurgan, 
the very last immortal and thereby won the prize. But if you think that's odd, then buckle your ass up. Highlander 2 posits that McLeod, Ramirez, and every other immortal were extraterrestrials from the planet Zeist, and that those that rebelled against General Katana, played by Michael Ironside, were exiled to live as immortals on Earth. The plot of the film centering around a bizarre environmental dystopia and a very ungracefully aged Connor McLeod not only throws away the logic and continuity of the first film, but all of its whimsy and fun. This dull and dour film has the audacity to blow up its predecessor and utterly fail to put any of it back together. Now, if that were all she wrote, then I think that all of us film lovers could look back on The Highlander as a mostly well-executed franchise. But sadly, no. Two of the original producers, William Panzer and Peter Davis, men who clearly decided they'd never need to have another original idea for the rest of their lives, kept going. First launching a syndicated television series based on the movie. Starring human block of wood Adrian Paul as Duncan McLeod, some distant relative of Lambert's character, to fumble around doing a sort of milk toast quantum leap helping people routine. Surviving an astounding six seasons, the series ended only to transition its main character into more feature films. Highlander 3 The Final Dimension arrived in 94, with Lambert returning to retell the story of the first film, essentially, with less originality and flavor. The fourth film, Highlander Endgame, served as the franchise's Star Trek Generations, as Lambert makes his final appearance as Connor McLeod to hand off the torch to Adrian Paul. And by the time we arrive at 2007's Highlander The Source, Adrian Paul is all that is left. Planned as the first of a trilogy to be aired on the Sci-Fi Network, so far no sequels have been forthcoming, and thank Zod for that. But fear not, rumors have been circling that stuntman-turned-director Chad Stahelski, director of John Wick, will reboot Highlander in another feature film. How does this corpse keep being reanimated? It must be a kind of magic. And with that, let's sharpen our Masamune sword, spar on a mountaintop, and seduce a woman 500 years our junior. It's Highlander on this panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians. Now, let me introduce our panel. Making his debut on Radio vs. the Martians, writer, reporter, and illustrator whose work can be seen on emmys.com and frequent contributor to the Film & Water podcast, I am pleased to introduce Mr. David A. Gutierrez. Welcome, David. Hi. Um, block of wood? Did you just describe Adrian Paul as a, bl- a block of wood? We'll get there. We'll get there. Next, a returning panelist, educator, a writer whose contribution, a writer whose contributions can be found in Airship 27, and his column on AtomicJunkShop.com, and Radio vs. the Martians, Gandalf the Grey. Welcome back, Greg Hatcher. Thank you very much. It's so flattering to be referred to as the ancient one. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, Ramirez to my McLeod, Corda to my Reno, Queen to my movie soundtrack, Mike Gillis. Oh, it's better to burn out than fade away. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get in right away. I want to start by asking the mega fan amongst us, David, what is Highlander? And also, if you can... Explain why is there a franchise of Highlander films instead of just a single film? I think you should start off with an apology. <laughs> to Adrian Paul? So, just to, yeah, yeah, um, okay, so, sorry, so your first question is, what is Highlander? What is Highlander? As in the the movie, or which you what explained is the, pretty well? What is the franchise? Why is there more okay. than one film? Okay, well, therein lies the problem, right? So the name itself... <laughs> acts as its biggest crutch and its most identifiable feature. So you have a character called the Highlander, and there's always a character, the central character is always always has the last name McLeod. 
but you have varying McClouds, right? So as you said, you have you have Connor, who's the star of the first four movies. You have Duncan, who's the star of the television series and two movies. Then you have uh, Quentin, who is the star of the uh, animated series. Then you have Colin, who is the star of the um, of the of the uh, anime. And then there was um, o- Owen, who was going to be the star of the uh, the video game. No. That was- that was canceled. So, <laughs> wasn't, wasn't there a I, I later, woman in there at sorry? some point? The Raven, I think. Yeah. Oh well, Amanda is not a Highlander, and in the spinoff series Highlander: The Raven. Amanda is a character who was uh, um, played by Elizabeth Grayson, who was who uh, debuted in the Highlander: The Series, who then spun off into her own thirteen-episode um, show. But uh, so Highlander really is just about and it's just about the quest for um, really for death that all these immort- that all these immortals they're they're drawn to uh, to a faraway land um, and most of the time it's New York in the time of the for the series it's this place called Sea Coover which I think is kind of around you guys it's in the it's either in Canada or somewhere in the United uh, States Pacific Northwest yeah it's it's probably what we call Planet British Columbia I think is what we call <laughs> I think so. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, so there, all these immortals are going to vie for the prize, and uh, as as the uh, as is the, the saying in the in the movie, there can be only one. There will be one person, one immortal, who will win the prize, and then that that prize kind of varies based on um, based on whatever on whatever you're looking at or whatever you're watching. Um, so that's Highlander. Mm. Also, I do just want to add that most people mis- mistakenly call. Immortals, Highlanders? No, they're immortals. Right, right. No, so they're Zeistians. Highlander, he can't die. What's no, the What's the demonym the... for people who come from Zeist? Zeistans? Zeist. Zeist. Uh, I believe we call them retcons. But but it's kind of weird. I guess you could call all the immortals Highlanders because there's so many fucking McClouds. This place is rotten with McClouds. Yeah, they were they were like bunnies. You do you think <laughs> the easiest thing that it would be for somebody like the Kurgan to do is just to wipe out that entire family? Because then you can just at the root knock out the guy who's probably going to kill you <laughs> or his is, nephew. The some of the, one of the mythologies behind the, it, it, it sort of detailed in the show was they're all foundlings, so no, no one is um, no one knows where these guys come from. So they just happen to be adopted by McClouds, and that's how they get the last name. So they're not even, they're not even I guess I was McClouds by birth. Wondering about that because my wife, of all people, I mean, I was she coming to this completely cold. She's a well, McCloud, yes. quite possibly. <laughs> um, but I was coming to this completely cold. She was the one that used to watch the show. Ah, yes, and, for that uh, wood, right for that hunky block of wood. <laughs> I, I guess so. Although to be honest, Julie's kind of soft-spoken her ideal is uh, jim hutton as ellery queen but that's mm. a whole nother thing uh, you know <laughs> um he's the, he's uh, a well-carved block of wood but he's still a block of wood that's what the, i'm saying the he's the a handsome man being, she's the one that told me that the immortals couldn't reproduce so i ah, yeah. i was right. completely baffled as how there got to be so, so many yeah. clouds well greg i wanted to i wanted to ask you first so um you are our wizard of lore uh uh-huh. and did Highlander make a blip the first movie and did it make a blip for you in its theatrical run or or did you honestly did you hear about it well truthfully um I mostly missed it um I think I saw the original movie once on cable and I think I was ah. 
I think it was, honestly, I think it was before I quit drinking, so I was probably pretty hammered. <laughs> so, so like not, you, you, like not, most people, didn't see it in the theaters. No, like, no. It had, it, when, when you, I thought there was really just like two and then the TV show, the idea that there were like five of the things and then cartoons and it's it just, <laughs> I was boggled by this. It's like, holy God, really? With the basic flaw baked into the thing's DNA. The whole thing is about narrowing it down to one guy. Yeah, this is true. Well, they right. did that in the first movie. <laughs> okay? Yes. The, the <laughs> tagline of the whole franchise is that there can be only one, yet right. somehow there are hundreds. <laughs> but I'm, you're I'm, narrowing I'm, it down to one. That doesn't mean yeah, like it's done. No, no, no. You narrow it down to one, and then in the next movie, you wipe out the board and start over. It's like, well, there can be yeah. only one, except for this guy. Now we got this guy. Well, then, then that's, uh, that's the hard part. Is that this was a it's movie? It's a kind of magic, guy. It is yeah. a kind of magic. <laughs> that's it what is, I'm saying. It's so strange about it. Is it's a movie that leaves not a single oxygen molecule between itself and the ending for a sequel to go. Right. That I mean, is if he wins the prize, it's over, and he won the prize. Well, Mike, multiple times he won <laughs> yes, the prize. That's true. I want to. Yes. I want to ask you, Mike, because. We, I often say that your superpower is enthusiastic recommendation. Now, sell this movie to, you know, the first movie, I mean, not okay. all, the whole thing, to a total stranger so we can, the, our audience knows exactly why it is that people would have loved this first, this first movie. Well, I, I think there's kind of an otherworldly presence that you have in Christopher Lambert that over the course of watching these movies, I really got to like him. That I think he manages to transcend the material. I think he has a a real physical charisma about him that uh, he feels like he's out of place. I think that he's one of the secret weapons of the first movie. Yep. He has like a weird, implacable accent that's really kind of odd. He's got these really intense eyes Mm -hmm. that make it feel... That's myopia. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's that's, that's just the new side of his talking. But <laughs> there's something that just feels ancient and weird and alien about him against every other character in the movie. So, I mean, even the costume that they give him where he's wearing like a leather jacket and this kind of loose fitting trench coat, these like baggy jeans that are rolled up at the bottom and these sneakers, it doesn't really fit together as an outfit that somebody would wear. It's kind of the Kyle Reese, I'm throwing something together in a store really quick to blend into a crowd kind of disguise rather than his own clothes and i think all of these elements that with the the fact that he has this japanese sword carried under his jacket all the time sort of fit into this world where this guy is kind of secretly moving through the world and occasionally he meets another weirdo like him because they sense each other's presence they fight and their swords clash with these crazy sparks and they can cut through concrete and steel (laughs) things and then one of them cuts the other one's head off and everything explodes And what I kind of love in this movie is they throw all of this at you with no explanation at the beginning. They kind of do the same kind of origin story that the original Tim Burton Batman does, where they just throw you into him being Batman and they seed the origin of why he's Batman throughout the story. I think they do it even better, though, in Highlander, where you just have him in a a pro wrestling match senses the dude in the parking lot, they fight, he beheads him. You don't know what the fuck's going on, but you know that these two guys knew each other's names. Everything explodes, and then he just kind of flees the scene. And it's got a Queen soundtrack. So, I mean, that's how I would sell that. I mean, everything about this 
is so weird, but all the individual pieces elevate it. I mean, you could just have a regular score on this movie, but Queen really is the greatest rock band of all time. And they wrote not just one song for it, like a theme song. They wrote like seven original songs that they released as singles and as part of an album called A Kind of Magic. And they people still like these songs, both in conjunction with Highlander and separate from it. So there's this real sense of all of these really kind of cool pieces and again, like you said before, the movie is is weirdly ambitious artistically in a way that a lot of movies of this time wouldn't be. With the crazy scene transitions, like it jumps up through the, the ceiling of the parking garage he fought in to it's like suddenly 1500 Scotland. And then it jumps from like the fishbowl behind him to a lake in Scotland. I mean, it just cuts to his life. And there really is a sense of the movie feeling like broad and old and there's a history to it and i think there's something about that that is just a world i'd like to sort of exist in i just wish that the movies didn't make it such a chore to exist in that world (laughs) so i i would that's how i would probably sell it to people just Hmm. a sort of sprawling story about these weirdos kind of in a harry potter existence sort of existing under the radar of every other person participating in this crazy contest or war between all of them to see who's going to basically have the cool ghost special effect prize at the end and get some unforeseen power and something plus Clancy fucking Brown is the bad guy in it. Well, we'll, we're definitely need to talk about Kurgan at some point. I I think my, uh, the, the joke that I had came up with is that the tagline for the whole series is shouldn't be, there can be only one. It's there should be only one. I'm guessing. Well, okay. Or my second would be it's called Murdergasm the movie because that's also the point of the movie is for you to cut off someone's head and have the best orgasm you've ever had in your entire life. So when somebody experiences the quickening, right. um, is that pleasurable or is that painful? Because I can't really... Uh, <laughs> could be both. Could be both. That's, that's you know, kind of like looking at the expression on a porn star's face <laughs> and asking that same thing. Because you want to... When they're to... doing something really weird. It is work. Yeah. yeah. Because, <laughs> right? so... I mean, at the, the fight he has in the parking garage at the beginning, he looks wiped out after that quickening. He doesn't yeah. look like he could get into another sword fight right away. He looks like he's done. Yeah. <laughs> and again, well, speaking. I mean, the thing you have to know is there was no template for that when that was when when uh, Russell McKay started directing the movie. The script just had, and then you know, then the quickening. So there's no there's no basis for that from the script. This was all Russell, from Russell McKay's head. All the all the um, all the uh, all, all the all the headlights exploding. The 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 lightning traveling from car to car, the yeah, like the the, the orgasmic like sensation. That was all from Mulcahy. Okay, that's th- whole cloth stuff. I think that's I know I think that's fascinating. I think there's you you we can't go into enough give Mulcahy enough praise. And if you if you get the chance to listen to the director's commentary that Mulcahy does for the first movie, it's pretty funny because he's uh he's so much more interested in like the nuts and bolts of how things were shot versus sort of telling hilarious stories or whatever. Um, but I mean, you can definitely say you can see with the the, the fact that that amazing shot of on that like on the flywheel that goes across Madison Square Garden. Tom, is it really Madison Square Garden that they're yeah. there? Uh, the the parking lot's like in London or something. But yeah. essentially, you don't you don't see this in a movie. You're hovering above this 
uh, you're hovering above like a pro wrestling match, and you go over the entire the entire audience. And then, of course, there's like this little camera flash transition, and then you see Christopher Lambert's eyes, and he's sort of sitting in the crowd, kind of pensively. Um, the 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 inventiveness, the uh, the idea that he's going to try to sell this, give a heightened reality to this world by making these crazy shots, these insane, almost unbelievable ways of representing something that should be mundane as something that seems somewhat magical. The way he the way he represents them, and to to think, okay, well, if he was just sort of interpreting the quickening, how do you sell that? Well, you'll just blow up a hundred cars in a parking garage. Like that's insane. That's totally crazy. Yeah, that's the thing. Is that one of the ongoing elements of Highlander movies? Frequently, are cops that are in the words of the guys that we hate movies, cold on their trail. Hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're they're really inept. There's always an investigation that seems to go nowhere, but. So they know that this guy, Fasil, was beheaded in the parking lot garage of Madison Square Garden. How do they explain all the exploded cars? <laughs> How's that going to come what up? I was wondering about. Okay, Actually, you're having the reaction. Was... Oh, go ahead. go ahead, David. Oh, what I was wondering about is what happened in the arena? Because all the, uh, like the fire alarm essentially goes, I mean, the sprinklers go off. Oh, everywhere. Which, which implies that. There must be like something that happened somewhere else, right? There must have, it must have registered on for, for someone that all these sprinklers have gone off, that all these cars have exploded, and then here comes uh, and then here comes Russell Nash, quote unquote Russell Nash, speeding out of the parking lot right into the into the path of the policeman. But uh, yeah, I always wondered what. So did the wrestling match? How did the wrestling match turn out? <laughs> yeah. Did the well, they, they only had ten minutes to film that anyway, so they couldn't have possibly filmed uh, right. the the outcome of that. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy, but I kind of love this is the element of the the world that I kind of like, which is it's again that Harry Potter type world where there's underneath the world that we exist in, there's this other supernatural world that is there and that we occasionally touch parts of it, but we never really understand it except for basically one of Connor McLeod's romantic interests who get kind of get pulled into it completely. But I've always kind of been fascinated with that kind of urban fantasy. The one where we don't change the world. The world is basically the same, except for this one thing that most of us don't know about. And right. that they have these very specific rules for how and where they fight, where they can't fight. Uh, the holy ground prohibition that they have um, is a, is kind of a bit like, narratively, the Continental Hotel in John Wick. Yes. Where it's essentially an excuse to have characters that should just start trying to kill each other have a place where they're not allowed to fight and you can have them talk and you can build up the uh, the tension, you can build up the stakes for the fight that they're going to have later. And uh, that's the part that I kind of like. And it makes sense that for some of these immortals, I mean, some of you are going to be sort of the sad, lonely guy who kind of shuffles through life, living these many lives, living under these different names. But then you have a guy like the Kurgan who essentially treats the world like his own game of Grand Theft Auto 3, <laughs> where, where he's basically just going around. Everyone else aside from him is an NPC that he can kill or brutalize or laugh at, that there's nothing that he respects. There's nothing that anyone can do to him. Even when that guy blasts him away with an Uzi, he just gets right back up. There's really very little that you could do to this guy. And he is essentially a psychopath that just has fun in the world. And you get the impression that even if the prize and the game and this contest didn't exist, he would still go around trying to kill other immortals. 
I, I, I was just thinking about this beforehand and when you, you mentioned that uh, sort of Clancy Brown. This movie owes a lot to The Terminator, I think. I can see you mentioned Kyle Reese before. This this movie is essentially a contest between uh, two guys, one who is the ultimate badass who can't be killed, and the other is also another badass, I guess, theoretically. It's a little different because Connor McCloud really can't be killed in an urban environment shot mostly at night, hooking a woman into sort of the intrigue and the stakes are enormous or whatever. I feel I feel like this this owes a lot of debt to James Cameron. Yeah, I can see the Terminator connection especially too because there's this huge battle with these stakes, but the none of the people that surround any of these people like the cops or any of the people that witness a fight in an alleyway know what's at stake or what's being fought over. They just, I mean, it's fucking New York. So they're like a bunch of assholes fighting with swords in the, in a parking garage. You're just like, Oh, fucking New York. All they care about <laughs> is what is this going to do to traffic? And I kind of, again, that's that part that I kind of like, which is like, like in Ghostbusters, that one guy that Rick Moranis growls at and his eyes go red and he runs away and the guy just goes, what an asshole. Um, I kind of love that environment for, uh, an epic fantasy story where most people just, they're in a different movie. And I, I like that. I like that sort of element of it. And occasionally a guy like the Kurgan who doesn't care about keeping this stuff secret because let's just say somebody does shoot him and he's, he just pretends to be dead for a little while, crawls out of the morgue and goes back to running around, having fun, cavorting, murdering people driving recklessly <laughs> so so russell russell mulcahy described this he as uh when he read the script he really liked it and that he wanted to do a comic book movie specifically can greg do you think you can you can dig out in what ways you think the first highlander is like a comic book in that way um it's like a 90s comic book in that it has complete contempt for everything that is not visually interesting uh, oh <laughs> The the underlying spine of the story, is, this movie that you guys are describing, I it sounds great. It's not the movie that I saw. <laughs> the movie oh, that I saw okay. falls apart if you poke it with a stick. And this is, I mean, Mike is getting all enthusiastic about that part. Yes. It's like, I'm sorry, I write for a living. I've been working with folks about, you know, I teach writing. One of the things that I really land hard on my students about is you don't get to run around behind your readers and explain things. Mm. It has to be there. And mm. what you're talking about, and, and bear in mind that I bow to no one in my love of shitty movies. Okay. <laughs> I own Roadhouse, the special edition. Nice. Oh. On purpose. <laughs> I own Roadhouse 2, Last Call. Okay. I'm, I'm right there with you. Oh, it's the sun, right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you on this. But Highlander, it, it's like it's pasted together from bits of other movies. And you guys are citing this as a strength. And I'm looking at it mm. and I'm thinking it's theft. Um, you know, and now you bear in mind that I kind of have a certain antipathy towards Christopher Lambert because I'm still pretty bitter about Greystoke. And, <laughs> sure. um, and one of many times they made a Tarzan movie that was terrible, right? Yes. One of many. One of many. Yeah. You know, I mean, Burroughs fans like me have had our hearts broken so many times <laughs> that we've just lost count, you know, but so there's that. And Russell Mulcahy is the guy that screwed up the shadow. Oh, so, whoa. whoa. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, uh -oh. this, this had two, two strikes going in. 
But you're 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 going. The shadow was after Highlander, so I feel like you're. Well, a, okay. <laughs> so, in fairness, the shadow was after Highlander Two: The Quickening, so that also doesn't yeah. bode well in Russell Mulcahy's camp. So you say you teach what writing? I, what I'm how get, much, what I'm how much get, of your class is on let, Highlander? <laughs> let me let me finish my thought. the The point is, the the movie that Mike is talking about. The, the internal world building sounds great, but in movies like John Wick or, uh, or the Terminator or, or um, you know, my favorite example of this is James Bond, where there's a whole other heightened reality of hollowed out volcanoes and super geniuses and hot girls that will always give it up after the first 10 minutes. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a world that didn't exist ever, but it was Ian Fleming's daydream and he sold that. The, my feeling is that Highlander doesn't sell it because it literally doesn't make sense from one moment to the next. Hmm. And this is my problem. And then you get the second movie that just, you know, smashes everything and starts over. And you get through that and you think, okay, well, Planetary Exile, that actually makes more sense, even though the Ramirez chronology is completely out the window. And I'm whatever, you know, let them have it. I'm a comic book guy. I understand reboots and weird discards of continuity that isn't working for you. I'm okay with that. But then you get the third movie where they discard everything again. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Well, yep. we watch this, we watch this play out five times. Yeah. Um, <laughs> to be fair, in the fifth and, one, it just doesn't bear any resemblance to anything. But I know. But, but <laughs> it's a sequel to them. Yeah. The, 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 but here's, I'm baffled by your complete affection for this and your disdain for other things that we've talked about that are so much better. Well, hmm. I, it's, hmm. I guess uh, th there's nothing rational about it. I think that's, that's kind of what comes down to me is just there's parts of this that I genuinely really like. There's a lot of pieces that work despite themselves. I think, I think that this is why having a TV show and having sequels that try to explain things in this don't work because there's no good answer to a lot of these questions. Why can't they fight on Holy ground? I don't know. I actually bought that. Yeah. You that, know, the idea that this sure. thing is, has a tradition of centuries. Okay. I'm on board. That's what, that works for me. But there's like a, there's some sort of mystical element underneath that, that I'm, I'm yes. like, I don't know what it is because they never quite, for all the things they explain, they never do a good job of, of dealing with that. But I, I like that element. All I know is that if I try to explain that, the answer will necessarily be disappointing. So it's best to just leave it vague with one movie. The same thing with, with a lot of this stuff. Um, I think it's also hurt by having all of these great lost loves of Connor McLeod over the years. Like he got another love interest because his, his wife gets killed off screen twice in two different ways in two different sequels. But <laughs> because they're constantly retconning the last movie. Again, I yeah. hear my point yeah. being made for me. But I guess what I what I mean in the original the original movie, though, is that I it plays into this idea that he should have only that one love interest because that's one of the themes of the movie that Ramirez tells him to leave his wife and says, I've been married three times. I've had the pain of losing three wives and it will break you because you will inevitably outlive everyone that you love. So it's better to just be a loner and travel around. Um, then after Ramirez dies, he refuses to take that advice um, and does live with his wife until she dies of old age. And the pain of that is why he's so lonely in the modern age. 
And I think that a sequel necessarily kills that theme and storyline by saying, oh, yeah, he was married a couple times in between. Well, frankly, when your main starter film is there can be only one, any sequel is yeah. going to dilute yeah. the idea. Yeah. That all it, you can... it should be a sequel-proof concept. Yeah, it really is. And you'd think well, that... Well, that you know, never got in the way of Hollywood making sequels anyways. No, it didn't, sequel-proof but it, never, it, it often gets in the way of making good sequels. Yeah, that's true. The Matrix oh, yeah. is pretty, pretty yeah. good. But I think The Matrix has more oxygen for a sequel than this does because it's kind of like at the end of The Matrix, he's like an all-powerful godlike being and... He won the prize. Yeah, he won the he won the prize, and the the machines are kind of fucked. But he didn't destroy them yet. It would be kind of if he had destroyed the artificial intelligence and freed all of humanity, and there's nothing left of it. Not even a post credit thing where a screen blinks on, and it's like, oh, it's still there, and it's going to come back. Um, even if you take all of that out, there are no more immortals at the end of that first one. That there really well, isn't. Yeah. There's nowhere else for him to go. He's also apparently mortal now that he has this like supreme superpower that ties him to the minds of all yeah, the people can, in the he world. He can read everyone's minds, apparently. But he he's... knows everything. He is everything. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, doesn't sound fun at all. Yeah. It doesn't <laughs> sound like a prize worth striving for. It sounds like something to avoid. It is. That's the part that I kept kind of coming back to as well, especially when you get into sequels, which is that. If the Kurgan had killed Connor McLeod in that factory and yeah. won the prize, the Kurgan is now way more killable than he was before. I mean, he has the power to probably influence and manipulate all this stuff in the world. It's implied it's sort of a mental, I'm in touch with all of life sort of thing. But that's one of those places where it's a little strange that, because they, they always build it up as the world will live under an eternity of darkness if, if the Kurgan wins this prize, because he's such an evil psychopath. Um, but the prize itself is, again, really oddly defined throughout this series. Well, right. Everything is, though. Like, the quickening itself in the first movie, it's a little... It's not. It's it's pretty ill defined, too, because first it's, like, feeling one with the stag or something, and then it's... Uh, <laughs> And then it's what happens when you when you take somebody's head, and these are two very different kinds of events. Yeah, you know, it was like um, a quickening of something you feel when another immortal is nearby. Also, well, that's the buzz. Well, yeah. that's that's a little different. But this is sense. all all this stuff is is kind of the stuff the the series swims in and 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 brings to light a lot of it, makes sense of a lot of it. So, I, um, I, so Greg, I think we're trying to we're we're not going to change Greg's mind, but I think there's a few things that we might have yeah. left on the table about the first movie we haven't got to yet, and certainly like the, Queen. Fir- the like Queen. Well, I get the before <laughs> Queen. I mean, we need to talk about the fact that without Sean Connery playing Ramirez, so say you substituted a you know a sort of an actor, with an that, actual Spaniard, a, maybe? A less, maybe a Spaniard, <laughs> perhaps. Egyptian. You have to go further back. You, he's not yeah, even my point is the first one of the things about the first movie that is odd is everybody has the wrong accent. Right. Yeah. Right. This well, makes it perfect that nobody fits. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Connery is a Scotsman who is playing an Egyptian who is living under a Spanish name and carrying a Japanese sword. And I kind and of love dressed like guy. some kind I mean, of medieval court jester. Let's not forget that part. The oh, costume I, is just odd. I thought I, I the oddness I think is part of what I love about it. And then you have uh, an actual Scotsman, 
a character, but he's being played by a Frenchman who's kind of doing a muddled Scottish accent at first. Really? Is that what that was? Kind of. Yeah. I thought he was just hissing. Well, it's, <laughs> if we're, we're shooting that Scottish accent through the prism of Christopher Lambert. And I love Christopher Lambert uh, in a very similar way to my love of Arnold Schwarzenegger, which is I yeah. think that they're both tremendous physical actors. That, and it's unyielding. Yeah. It's unyielding. There's something weird and they feel other from everyone else in the movie. And there's something physical about them that I think stands out and is very impressive. Um, I think they both have a great glare with their eyes, um, but their downfall often comes and maybe the downfall can turn into a, an unintentional strength is that dialogue does not move easily through those lips. No. <laughs> well, see, he's, he's the, not quite under the giant. In the pr- that <laughs> Again, this, this physical guy that you're describing is not who I see. And maybe this is the Greystoke hangover. Oh. Um, but you know, to me, Christopher Lambert doesn't look like the action hero. He looks like the mad scientist. That's the henchman to the villain. That's cooking up the, the bioweapon. Hmm. He he looks like he ought to be in a lab coat holding a beaker gloating about how it's going to <laughs> cleanse the earth for, you know. And, and David did bring it up. His laugh is fucking delightful. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a strange thing because it, it feels like a laugh that was... It's like he had never laughed before and the director goes, we, we need you to laugh <laughs> for this movie. And he's like, okay, I'm going to figure this out. So he watches a bunch of people laugh and this is his approximation. <laughs> It's uh, so, described the sociopath. It is. It's, <laughs> well, can, can we talk about that? This is a, a franchise where you win by beheading a bunch of people you don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do we? I, I also I almost <laughs> think life. that if you kind of consider, is the draw to this movie is beheadings? Well, I mean, be, beheadings it, and Queen. Yeah, <laughs> that's a combo that I, right off the bat, you got my money for the ticket right now. <laughs> well, that, so we do we do have to talk about Queen then too because. Uh, you know, there is. I, I was trying to think about this. There are very other, very few movies where you so concretely uh, connect the soundtrack by a popular musical artist with the movie. I'd say Simon and Garfunkel with the Graduates definitely one of them. Where you you can't uh, you can't disentangle those two. Uh, Titanic and Celine Dion. Sure, uh, this one for me has to be up at the very top uh, because my my real question is is. What would this movie feel like if it was just the Michael Kamen soundtrack and didn't have Queen? It would feel. It would feel. (laughs) Yes, it does. Yes, it would feel really hollow. Flaws would be more readily apparent. Yeah, the the music video sensibility is one of the things that carries it. Yeah, yeah. You can't have a music video sensibility without the music, right? Which, not to my taste, but I'm not going to argue that. I'm, I'm not going to say that's not a strength. Yeah. It's not something that I would go to the theater for. But, you know, that definitely is is a high point of that movie. And so, of course, they quit doing it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's cost, too. And we also, we lost Freddie Mercury along okay, the way as well. But, but well, yeah. You think they'd not, at least license the old song. I'm not saying it has to be Queen. Shaft, the Shaft franchise, made three movies with three different popular soul artists. It was a selling point of that franchise. Um, all three of the soundtracks were hits. They're actually, you mean like Bond? Like Bond movies is kind of weird. Yeah, sure. like that. It's yeah. It's doable. Um, except even even Shaft and Bond didn't do it to the extent that, that Queen did for Highlander. Yeah. But I refuse to believe that there's not a band that wouldn't lunge at that deal after seeing what had happened with Queen. I, yeah. think, I think that is 
something that that's one of the things that they just lost. Yeah. You know, um, there, there are, see, sorry, go ahead. If I can just interject. So you'll see that one of the problems that every sequel has pretty much, or this franchise has is comes down to money a lot of times. And, um, for example, the second movie fell under the control of a bond company because of, well, because of costs. Uh, the third movie, I think, ended up kind of falling under a bond company's control to some extent. <laughs> um, bonding company. Um, so there's not a lot of money to throw around for a band. And the success of Highlander and Queen's association with it didn't come for like years. So they were always chasing something that took time to to get appreciate you know to to get appreciated hmm. and and uh and to and just to become this perfect thing perfect thing greg <laughs> well, and, uh, well i i think we should i mean i was looking looking at this up i was thinking okay so 1986 let's talk about other popular movies that came out in 1986 and the two of in the sort of in the top 10 or so that were genre pictures top gun and aliens the jim cameron movie are both 1986 um, so the budget for, as says on IMDb, the budget for this Highlander movie was about $16 million. Um, Top Gun was $15 million and Aliens is $18 million. So when you sort of compare the way those movies look and the way those movies feel, and obviously they were made with directors that were more experienced, clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, the They're in the same budget range as Top Gun and Aliens, and yet this feels more like a B-movie. Um, even though it certainly is, even though it certainly is sort of trying for B movie sensibilities, um, like Just, I wonder if it that, is a B movie. It's yeah. not. It's not like a B movie. It but is the, a B movie. There's a B movie, but it's, tone. It, it is an expensive B movie. It is a yeah. it is a B movie with an A movie budget. Is what okay. it is. So there was a there was clearly a choice that was made to make it look and feel like a B movie. Yeah, I think sometimes there's a production can change it. Like I, until probably about ten years ago. Thought that 2001 A Space Odyssey was a far newer movie than it actually is. It doesn't look like a movie that came out the same year as the original Planet of the Apes. It feels like a 1970s movie in a lot of ways. And I was kind of shocked because I guess sometimes that production value can just be incredible. Where you're just like, wow, I thought that was newer than what it is. And I think you can say with Top Gun in this and also with Aliens in this. that I guess one of the differences is that... You know, Aliens is being made by a major studio, and this one is being made by Canon Films. I think we've talked about Canon Films a little bit. Mm-hmm. Was it Canon? It was a yes. Canon it's film. Okay. It's Dimension is what I saw. The Dimension logo is what I remember. Was I mistaken? Yeah, yeah Canon Films, is, I don't have their logo on a lot of the new um, video releases of it, their, mm. their studio logo, but it was released as a Canon film. It's one of the better canon films, I've well, got to say. Yeah. It's probably the best. Yeah. It is, I think it is probably the best canon film. It's the only one that anyone's talked about remaking, certainly. Um, not, unless you count Masters of the Universe, and that's a whole other mess. But <laughs> King Solomon's. King Solomon's Minds. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> there's, yeah. There's so, a sequel coming. So if you guys aren't familiar with the idea of canon films, if you saw a Chuck Norris movie from the 80s, you've seen a canon film. Uh, pretty much anything with Chuck Norris or Charles Bronson in his uh, golden years is uh, is a, a lot of people getting shot. Um, boobs show up a lot in these movies, explosions. Um, Greg liked to uh, dub this the fuck yeah moment. Um, <laughs> this was the fuck yeah studio. And they were all about sort of fist pumping, crazy bullshit action. There's a great documentary on Canon that came out a couple of years ago. It's really worth checking out. But... Um, 
this this has that kind of vibe to it. It is a canon film. It kind of it looks like a very high end canon film from the the shots that are used in this movie. Um, there's a lot more interesting lighting. There's a lot more interesting camera movement. No other camera canon film would have had that opening shot at the wrestling match with that crane moving around with the camera. Because somebody would have gone, fuck it, that's expensive, let's not do that, let's have another explosion. <laughs> uh, it's like, there, there's, it's a bit more restrained in those ways, and I guess it does feel like a a music video in a lot of that, because I mean, obviously Russell Mulcahy is a music video guy, and that plus Queen. I think this may be where, um, where I sort of separate from Greg, because... On a factual level, I agree with every single thing that you're saying, but I still <laughs> love this thing. And I think a lot of it is that it is a house of cards. It is it is a hollow castle. It it is a thing that is not a piece of high art in the same way that Aliens or or even Top Gun is. But Top Gun high art, all right. Well, you're, okay. you're stretching, but oh, I guess some of us like volleyball <laughs> games. I guess, but the, but. <laughs> The uh, the thing with um, the thing with uh, Highlander is that it, all the the pieces that elevate it into a higher plateau than what it actually is, and oftentimes they are distractions. Whether it's the artsy uh, camera movement and transitions, or the fact that I am won over by the charm of Christopher Lambert and think that he and Sean Connery actually have really good screen chemistry, or I really like. Uh, Clancy Brown as the villain, the fact that when he walks out of that seedy motel, I think he's staying at the same motel as the Blues Brothers, <laughs> <laughs> where the creepy dude at the front starts trying to hit him up to try to sell him drugs, and he just says, don't ever speak to me. <laughs> um, like That kind of whispery, kind of orgasm voice menace from from uh, Clancy Brown is on its on its height. Um, sparks when swords hit each other. Yeah. Uh, the fact that the past is actually looks expensive. Like it looks like a real castle rather than just like, this is a flat painting and there's like things holding it up well, on the other side. No, no part of this movie seems to be filmed near Vasquez rocks. So yeah. in that sense, you feels like, like I said, I can, there are p- pieces of it that legitimately feel like the, a De La Rentis movie that they flew camera off to somewhere in Europe and it looks not Southern California. But all of those pieces, I guess the thing is, I, I think the difference between you and I, Greg, and this is that all those pieces that distract me from the fact that if I blow on it hard enough, it'll fall over. Those are good enough for me. And those are enough of a thing that distract me enough from its flaws. Okay. Well, that I love it. Yes. Here's my thing. Okay. There, there's a great anecdote um, about Dashiell Hammett and Lillian Hellman. And Lillian Hellman had just finished the first draft of her play, The Little Foxes. And she gave it to Hammett to read. And Hammett got like halfway through it and then cussed and swore and threw it across the room. And Hellman was horrified. She said, well, is it that bad? And he said, it's worse than bad. It's almost good. (laughs) And see, that's kind of how I feel about the the first Highlander movie. There's lots of pieces of it that I actually really like a lot. I know it doesn't sound that way, but truthfully, (laughs) the, the idea of the immortal tragedy of loving someone that's going to die, that you're going to watch age and die, I think that's brilliant. Um, I also think that Robert Heinlein did it a lot better in his book, Time Enough for Love, 
Um, I, I, you know, but again, that's okay. If you're going to swipe, swipe the good stuff. I'm okay with that. I'm on board with that. It's just that interspersed with this great idea about lonely immortals battling it out because they're fated to fight for this very amorphous goal that I'm still not sure about because the series isn't sure either. Greg. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I don't get why, what motivates people other than self-defense. Yeah. I mean, granted, Lambert at least has, you know, the self-defense thing going on. But the idea that your your goal, your the best thing you can figure out to do with your immortal life is to go around beheading everybody else who's like you just to get their, I don't know, mojo. I'm really not on board with that. Mm. But, you know, I understand that there's a need for some kind of a conflict. And if it was what Mike is describing, where it's just Clancy Brown as the psycho moving through the centuries, beheading people because it's cool. <laughs> and let's that, face it, that, it is. that would make a lot more sense. The idea of the hidden world of the immortals, this underpinned society that nobody really knows about. And another guy that did this really brilliantly is a writer named Fred Saberhagen with his new Dracula stories. Hmm. And it starts with a book called The Dracula Tape, which is where Dracula gets to tell his side of the Stoker thing. <laughs> and and then, you know, there are other many sequels, you know, Dracula's Adventures here and there and the other. And there's, the great thing about it is the underpinning of the society of vampires that have learned to move among us. And I think that that's the story that Highlander started out to be. And then it got polluted with all this weird music video bullshit and stuff that was improvised and thrown in to look cool. I don't know if that's actually the case, well, but it's what it feels like. Okay. I, I think we're gonna, I think I'm going to have to give David cause he, he's been itching. I think you need to give your last full throated defense here. And then we're gonna have to move on to talk about number two. I think. Do we so have go, to talk about? Yes, <laughs> yes, we do. Go A ahead, remarkably David. appropriate way of phrasing it. <laughs> go um, ahead, David. Please. Here's here's what I'll say, and and I agree with Mike in that there are certain. It is, as he put it, a house of cards. But this is one of those things that's just a, an amazing blending of things that shouldn't work. That just they just do, because you have this guy who squints all the time you can't really understand what he's saying sometimes or, um, as as your as your main character but he's this like scruffy old detective chewed up looking guy who's this reluctant warrior and his his teacher is sean connery who's doesn't even try to do another accent but <laughs> it's it's just a crazy world and it yeah and it's it's this hyper reality that's fueled by the greatest group that ever assembled these four individuals called queen and it's just visually spectacular it's just it's it's just it's like a fever dream given life mm. and nothing should fucking work sorry can i cuss on <laughs> yes this? you oh, may God, please did you miss sorry. all our that's right language? I've heard <laughs> nothing should work it should it should just be a mess that but it it's such a beautiful song and mm. i'm going to it is like Bohemian Rhapsody in that you have just these pieces that maybe shouldn't work together. And when you look at the assembly of that song, just so you know, everything in my life, I relate to a Queen song. So this is fitting. Um, <laughs> just this, like even the people involved were like, what are you doing, Fred? And then he, it's just this, this weird, intricate assembly of things that shouldn't come together, but do. And it is just like uh, – like the earth just splooged in your face. It is just this weird, like, what is this? Hap what is happening? It this is, is your defense? 
That doesn't sound any more fun than the quickening. I just mean that it is an assembly of amazement and, and just things just that shouldn't necessarily work but do. It's 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 a it's like a weird symphony that just comes together and and just rocks your face off. Uh, all right, great. Thank you, David. Um, can we? Can we? Thank you very much. I have to say that I'm, in a lot of ways, on the same page as as David on this, which is that it, there's something to me that I love the idea of a thing that shouldn't work but does despite itself. Um, and and again, Bohemian Rhapsody is a ballad that turns into an opera song, and there's this this kind of gravitas to it that is both simultaneously totally straight-faced and a little bit tongue-in-cheek at the same time. Um, And I think it marries itself so well to the cinematography of this movie and the fact that it does get a little fancy and weird and that it's trying so hard. And the individual charm of the people involved, giving it their all, um, it overcomes the fact that a lot of things just don't make sense. And like... Christopher Lambert was not fluent in English at the time that he made this. No, so. he was hired without. They didn't even have an. It, it seems like a weird story that he would be hired with with them, uh, not even not discovering he didn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> See, to me, that seems like something that would come up in the interview. <laughs> it's, well, like there's no script. He's like, oh, this isn't English. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, and you're also not allowed to wear glasses during all the flashback sequences too, or because. Fighting. Yeah, you're fighting with swords. And by the way, and just jump ahead a little bit, that eyesight did become an issue in Highlander 2, where he got part of his finger cut off in a sword fight with Michael Ironside. <laughs> and Michael Ironside got one of his his teeth chipped. All right, yeah. so you you broke the seal here now. We've got to talk about it. So the it's it's infamous. Uh, I think Roger Ebert... Roger Ebert? Yes. Roger Ebert said it better than anyone could. He began his review saying... This movie has to be seen to be believed. On the other hand, maybe that's too high a price to pay. Uh, so, the the bit of the one bit of reference that Mulcahy gives in the commentary for the first one was that he believes that the story conceit to make a sequel, written by uh, was it Panzer and someone else? Which one, David? Which one was the co-writers for Highlander Two? Oh. Um... So that, I, I oh, could look that it was, up. Uh, but... Clemens and uh, um, Brian Clemens, who it's, it, it has a lot of writers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in any event, that's always a good sign. Mulcahy, Peter Bellwood, Brian Clemens came up with a story, and William Panzer. Panzer, also yeah. Came up so with I, I'm yeah. laying this on the feet of the Panzer and whatever the other guy is. Anyways, he called the he called the story conceit bullshit. Mulcahy did. And I'm guessing yeah. he probably relented to direct it because he felt like if I'm not gonna if I'm not, I'm not gonna let anyone else do it, it might as well be me, I suppose. And when when else am I gonna get a budget this big again? Maybe that's true. Um, I think they were all contractually obligated to come back. <laughs> it, it sort of feels joking. like it, Man, which always brings out everyone's best. <laughs> that's the best way to create art. Um, I, mean, I, I, I wow. This is like the this is I think the cinema's greatest example of holy shit. Why? You know, that, that sort of thing, when you're thinking about why would you do a sequel to this. But, I mean, this movie was released in the same year as Terminator 2. Also another movie that should never have had a sequel, except this the result of that was totally the opposite of this. The polar opposite. <laughs> Something that, 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 you know, was better than and 
sort of increase the scale and scope and danger and drama of the first one. Well, that's James Cameron's superpower the... is that he can take yeah. a thing that should probably be left alone and make a really good sequel to it. But yes, <laughs> this was not a James Cameron movie. No, um, I have a weird sort of perverse respect for Highlander 2 because <laughs> it would have been so easy for them to just make Highlander 3, which is, hey, let's make the same movie beat for beat copy all the things like because highlander 3 is basically the first you don't even really have to talk about it that much it's a force awakens kind of thing. it is yeah. it, except worse because the force, <laughs> awakens, <laughs> force awakens at least has some original characters and ideas and um a charm and a budget to it where it's like okay we're gonna have the same thing where there's another uh cold on our trail police investigation that goes nowhere modern day lady learns that finding out that a dude is immortal is the world's greatest aphrodisiac that uh, raspy-voiced immortal kills McLeod's mentor, kidnaps someone and drives recklessly with them, and eventually has a fight in a factory. I mean, it's the exact same movie. And that's how a lot of sequels... It's a Ghostbusters 2 method. It's the Home Alone 2 method. It's let's make the same thing as we did before, but change the nouns and the setting a little bit, and we'll go as safe as we possibly can. And those sort of sequels are boring. Now, Highlander 2 is a sequel along the lines of like Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey or Gremlins 2. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, by the way, how do you make a sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure? Kill them. You kill them. Yes. And then at one point, their spirits ascend to heaven where they recruit two Martians to help them build (laughs) robot doubles to defeat their evil android doubles from the future in the Battle of the Bands. Uh, Or having in Gremlins 2, it's like, well, how do we do this? Well, we trap them in a building and Christopher Lee shows up. And at one point, Hulk Hogan breaks the fourth wall, talks directly to the viewers and tells the Gremlins to get out of the projection booth, brother. I mean, it's like, you can go the safe route or you can just fucking burn it all to the ground in the most spectacular way possible. Um, and I think Russell Mulcahy was probably thinking along the lines of Joe Dante with gremlins too, which is, well, fuck it. If I can do whatever I want and you got giving me a good place to make a sequel from fuck it, I'm going to do something fucking weird. And I have more respect for this movie than the other sequels because it's taking risks it's taking Thank you, spe- Mike. It's, a, it, <laughs> it is a massive um, failure, but it's the kind of failure you want to show to another person just to prove that it's real. <laughs> so, times, well, yes. okay, you can say that about the terror of Tiny Town. That's not yeah. really a, a plus. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a plus compared to if they had just made the next one. That's true. Right. Which I, is what's memorable. Highlander 3 is not memorable at all. Yeah, well, Highlander Except so I, it was the sexiest movie of 1995. That's how they built it. Sure. Than- uh, <laughs> speaking of which, is anyone kind of uncomfortable with the way Christopher Lambert does love scenes? Oh, he's into it. I don't he's, think he oh, knows yeah. that they're not filming. He, I mean, that he, I don't think he knows they're filming sometimes. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's uncomfortable in the way that he does things that remind me that I'm watching actors and go, oh, did d- she agreed to that. <laughs> um, he just went with it. You mean? He yeah. Just there's sort a of... there's a lot of nipple sucking, and I don't know how French. I feel about this. He's you're, French. Yeah, you're licking another actor, <laughs> and it's he does this in every movie, and they don't do it in Endgame probably because somebody probably called the producer and like, oh, I'm playing kind of a lover, and just can we not do this? Um, oh, it's, it's when De Niro goes method, but when Lambert does, you, you, uh, <laughs> you are going to get your nipples sucked. 
Um, but what if that's why he agreed to do the Islander three? Like, you know what? I will do this if I can suck somebody's nipples. That's no. why it didn't appear in, high, in uh, Mortal Kombat two. Oh, oh well, <laughs> they, there you are. They broke the By nipple the way, contract. Just as an aside, I want to say that Highlander two is the one I was looking forward to the most because of Clemens. Do you know who Brian Clemens is? Mm-hmm. Do you know his? He's the yeah. man that created Emma Peel. Oh, really? he is. He is the guy that wrote the Golden Voyage of Sinbad. He's. He was he's like a. Found in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I was horrified to see this movie, and and then I saw all the other writers, and I thought, well, okay, because again, Highlander Two has a lot of the good points that that Mike has made. the The idea of the the exile idea is something that I really liked. And I was willing to get over the cognitive dissonance of Sean Connery being there when he shouldn't have been right. there. How, so, is he, how is he old but, friends with the guy that he just yeah, met in the last movie? Yeah. Let's, let's yeah. explain this a little bit so you find out. So it's the future. So wait, and it so feels, we're going to talk about the Zeist version? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, they, they made a, we'll talk about the director's cut after. But okay. the theatrical cut says that, uh, you know, it's in the future now. It's in 2025 or something. And yep. uh, the ozone layer is depleted. And so... Uh, Clearly using his powers from the prize, uh, McLeod, with another scientist, created this big electromagnetic shield over the world to save the planet from being burned up by the cosmic it, it's radiation. It's kind of the same force field from Spaceballs. <laughs> it does look a little bit like that. So this is sort of, it's weird because it sort of seems like, Greg, you've been on the show before, we talk about these sort of 1970s dystopian sci-fi movies where there's some kind of devastation and there's a, you know, there's a little a resistance group that's got to go up against the... Big, evil ba- big corporation, yeah, yeah, the evil corporation, the big bad thing, and um, and in defiance of every sociological principle there is, as soon as the big bad guys are exposed, all of society goes, oh well, fuck that guy, <laughs> and and a revolution takes place. Which I want to live in that world. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. <laughs> that would actually be a lot more efficient than the way we live now. So what? that's just the backdrop. So you, so McLeod is an old man. So presumably. If you, I think you'd be so fucking confused if you didn't watch. If this is the first movie in this the trilogy you watched, you'd be like, I don't understand. This was the first movie in this oh, trilogy really? that I had watched. <laughs> so he's an old man and he's dying, presumably. And then you see the backstory in something that looks way too much like David Lynch's Dune. Looks well, a lot like Dune. It does look. They're like on Dune. a desert planet, and uh, all these guys they're running around in the sand. They uh, they arrive at this junky old place, and then there's Sean Connery. Who's still called Ramirez? He's got a name that uh, is from Earth. They're still called Ramirez and McLeod. That's apparently. a point where you just kind of do what the series' second motto after "There can be only one" is. It's called "Fuck it, just go with it." <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> and they they are fighting a revolution against General Katana, Michael Ironside, and they lose. And so instead of just dying, I don't know why they they have some kind of hokey sorcerers or priests or something that say you can't do that. They have to choose what they want, and he's they'll a pretty choose. shitty dictator. We can't boss around the monks. Yeah, he's he's over. He gets so pissed. He's so pissed. So they choose Ramirez, and uh, after sharing like some kind of weird little orgasm machine together, quickening machine together, they dip their fingers in it, and they have a little shared. Also, that's how the Coneheads have sex in that movie. <laughs> by the way, <laughs> then they they both get exiled to Earth, and so therefore that's apparently seeds what happened in the first movie. And they're, you know, they're going to lose their memory or something, which is why McCloud doesn't remember who he is. Anyways, that's the terrible setup. And it's a Virginia Madsen really slumming it in this movie. From Dune. For, yes, yes, from Dune. 
Um, she is the revolutionary leader trying to convince the world that the shield needs to come down and that it's just the evil corporation trying to keep us all under control. Um, and general Zod, Oh, I mean, general Katana sends, uh, <laughs> sends two guys that look like they kind of act like skull from power Rangers. They're always yeah. going, yeah, <laughs> they, they really they're just like birds. Well, that was the default laugh in the nineties. <laughs> <for henchmen. laughs> yes. That's that. That's like the trademarked hench laugh. Right. Yeah. They have that, that loud, and they have to move their mouth as big as possible because they're afraid that someone's going to ADR that delivery away from them. Well, these guys look like <laughs> these guys look like they just took like the special effects crew from masters of the universe because the costumes look the same kind of. and they're also <laughs> flying on those same little flying skateboards that they flew in in masters of the universe. They're weird. So they just like, hair. they well, just, one had wings in. and one had the hoverboard. Oh, right, right. Or okay. Reno, yeah. In any event. Yeah, so I'm the, fascinated they, by your eidetic memory of Masters of the Universe. What's that? Keeps coming up. Speaking <laughs> <laughs> of masterpiece. But, I mean... High the, art. <laughs> high art. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, I want to I talk about some things that I, I actually like in Highlander 2, and that, that sounds weird as it comes out of my mouth, but the sets have this kind of... Batman 89 vibe to them where the streets are always wet and there's these crazy like structures that are holding buildings up. The set design is pretty cool looking. It's it is a it's like a it kind of reminds me of the way that they did with Dark City where you're doing sort of a rained over rained over dystopia but it has like a 1950s flair to it it has a like a deco flair to it as well like hulking black buildings there's a bit of it definitely going for that Blade Runner vibe uh, that they're going for quite a bit but there's an element of just kind of wanting to build something new and interesting. Um, uh, a lot of the, the building kind of, a lot of the, the movie looks good. You can see the budget in it, but again, it's not supporting a thing that is any good. Um, I do like the hammy acting from both Michael Ironside and John C. McGinley, who plays the head of the evil corporation. Because it feels like there's a TV trope called ham-to-ham combat. (laughs) Um, And it really feels like these guys are dueling for... It's like Hungry Hungry Hippos with the scenery. And they're always, at any given time, about two lines away from both going... (laughs) Um, They are... A lot of fun to watch, even though objectively what they are doing is terrible. It almost feels like they're sabotaging the movie. Um, <laughs> where they're just like, they're making fun of the act of acting while they're doing this. They're like, fuck it, this is schlock. I might as well make this fun. Well, that might hold water until you look at Michael Ironside's resume. That's his brand. Yeah. yeah. That's he's, what he does. He's in his element. He's That's a... the only reason to watch Space Hunter. <laughs> or, or um, God, I, I mean, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Michael Ironside. I I loved him when he showed up in, in V, the final battle. And, oh, it's ham, yeah. Oh, yeah. he was awesome. I loved when he showed up in X-Men First Class out of nowhere. And yeah. As it a battleship feel, captain. It feels yeah. like somebody just goes, oh, my God, I can get Michael Ironside today. That's what it feels like. And that's a feeling I can relate to. It's, it's like running into an old friend in a completely unexpected place. Like, dude, I had no idea you shopped here. Or, yeah. you know, whatever. What is it? He's, he's kind of like the... Is it what they called the Jeff Goldblum's character from the first Death Wish? Like the I'm having rape for dinner vibe? Where they just, like, delight in carnage. And their whole... 
They have to, and I guess Clancy Brown did exactly the same thing in the first one, is that they are those giddy sociopaths who, when, so General Katana gets to come to, he's too impatient, I guess, so he wants to come back to Earth to get McCloud, and so they kind of do shades of the of He's the waited thing. 500 well, years, and then he just yeah. gets impatient in the last yeah. five minutes of this guy's life. The, uh, the time is weird, right? The, the great is- phrase for this, Howard Chaikin came up with it, a, a writer and comic book artist. He calls it, Evil guys gloating in their evil tude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's complete. I love those guys. I feel really sorry for the taxi driver that drives uh, General Katana <laughs> around. That guy gets fucked. <laughs> he doesn't, problem, he didn't deserve the problem, it. The problem these movies have is they're always chasing, well, I call it the Kurgan shadow, right? They, yeah. they've, they've never been able to equal, a, they never had a villain that that's as compelling as the Kurgan. I think it also hurts that they're trying to make them act as much like the Kurgan as possible. That I think right. if you're going to replace somebody or fill their shadow, do something different. Do do the opposite of the Kurgan rather than this big sword fighty guy. Go a different route with it. But they always went for like that I delight in carnage, I giggle, I kidnap people and go on a crazy merry chase. And everyone is afraid for their life, but I'm immortal, so I don't fucking care. And he does that on the train. Um, Kane does that in the taxi cab in the next movie. Everyone is always doing that. Find something new that doesn't highlight the fact that this is a poor substitute for the thing that you liked. And that can cover a lot. I mean, this is, again, why it's a cool thing that Kylo Ren is not a copy of Darth Vader. That you find a different tech, that he's a guy who wants to be Darth Vader. And that's a different character, and you can have fun with that. And he can play a lot of the roles that you would give to Darth Vader in a movie like that, but then frequently will do the opposite of what you expect Darth Vader to do. And I think that Highlander is so guilty of trying to find these whispery-voiced guys who kind of sound like, I'm going to kill McCloud. <laughs> and uh, it just gets really old over time. Um, the worst example of this is in Endgame, where I think the bad guy is from that shitty Dungeons and Dragons movie. He I, is. Yeah. Yes. And <laughs> he's just a guy who does kind of hammy villain monologues. And he is so boring. I mean, it's fun to watch this guy basically go, <laughs> but they had Donnie fucking Yen in that movie. What if they'd made him the villain? What if they'd said, hey, we have a guy who can do amazing fight scenes and is great in everything that he's in and has the best sword fight in the movie and is not another, you know, whispery voiced white guy. Okay. Again, you're making the Hammett criticism. Yeah. It's almost good. Yeah, it's the movie that you see underneath it. You guys keep talking. Well, like I think that's there's, the movie I think there's a got. reason. There is a reason why the franchise survived past. There's a good. There's a the ba- the base most basic reason why there was a third movie and beyond. This movie made triple the box office money that the first one did. So, and I don't know if this accounts. I always call this the uh, call this the into darkness effect, which is like it takes. When there's a shitty movie that's a sequel, it takes the next movie for them to really find out how bad the, that movie actually was. Because a sequel <laughs> usually, the box office receipts for a sequel usually reflect how good the first one is. Because people want to go right. back and see the, and see that one. Um, I mean, hell, the uh, as far as adjusted, I think it was adjusted for uh, inflation. The first movie is the fourth highest grossing in the entire series. 
the fourth highest one. Yeah. So I, I, I can only imagine that it was it was the fandom that had discovered the movie on cable or on VHS that were like, oh, yes, another Highlander movie. I'm actually going to go see it in the theater this time uh, and go watch it. But it was insanely popular. And I and I I think I remember enjoying it after watching it and renting it from the rental store too because good sci-fi movies were hard to come by back then. <laughs> I, they were I get or the, decent sci-fi the, movies. The impression that I get of the Highlander series as a whole, um, I think there's a cautionary tale in there about <laughs> whether everything needs to be a franchise. That I think we did this thing once that it was a lot of fun despite its flaws. And then you made a dumpster fire. It's like a bad movie masterpiece in terms of like, if I'm going to make the worst sequel of all time and I've accomplished that now it's time to just let this go. We're done. Um, and, but they just kept going that we, we should have paid attention to the second movie and just stopped. Um, and nowadays I think because everyone is so franchise centric nowadays, that there would have been in the very first movie, like a post-credit sequence or an element that doesn't let you put a full cap on these movies so that you can bleed over into anything. And I think sometimes that's the weakness of a lot of modern movies, which is that they're so busy trying to build a foundation for sequels that it ends up detracting from the movie itself. Um, but I think with, with Highlander... They just had this fan base that had been created on cable and on VHS, and they wouldn't let it go. And they just kept, and to the point that by the end of the series, you chop its head off and a couple sparks come out of it. It's, it's done. It's, it's, and it just keeps being more and more done. And it's like, are we going to let this thing die with any amount of dignity whatsoever? And the answer over and over again is no. <laughs> well, yeah, but you can say that about a dozen different, you could, you could make that case for the original Planet of the Apes series. Oh yeah. You can make that case for lots of series. I don't think that's the cautionary tale. The cautionary tale is more um, the idea of finance-driven movie making. Yeah. And the and reason you got more movies is because the later ones made more money than the first one. Yeah. And and also the, this is this isn't this isn't the the tw the, the tw 20 teens where it's about building franchises that you can spin off characters although this did happen for this. It was in rental stores we can sell these for you know, four, five, six, seven, eight sequels to this movie, as long as they're in the rental store, people will still rent them. They'll be as willing to rent this as they would the fifty million dollar studio blockbuster, you know, that's being made. Well, truthfully, and they were, and they were really big overseas. I think you, you guys <clears throat> might be discounting that they were huge hmm. in Europe. Christopher Lambert's a big Christoph Lambert's a big French star. Christoph, hmm. But, well. <laughs> Not in my country. Arguing. <laughs> but I, yeah. I, I kind of get the impression it's sort of like Highlander is a relationship that was really fun in the beginning. And it hasn't <laughs> been good for such a long time. But you stay together because you hope that you'll see, you'll see it get back to what it was. But by every stretch of any, any serious thought that you put into it, you should just say, I should break up with this person. I should end this. <laughs> but you, every so often you see a glimpse 
a tiny glimpse of something that it seems kind of hopeful, and they just drag it out forever, and nobody is happy. Okay, what was the glimpse in uh, Highlander 3, The Final Dimension, a.k.a. The Sorcerer? Um, Probably that moment where they go into the snake bar, which I guess is a thing. Um, I don't know if that's a real thing or or not. I'd believe either one, but there's just a pop-o-matic bubble with snakes in there, and I don't know what this is. (laughs) No, (laughs) I... I just I think at that point you just kind of what happens with a lot of sequels is that it's not good you don't really enjoy the story but you just kind of like watching this actor play this character and that you have an affection for it that's kind of like background radiation left over from the first one and you don't really enjoy it but it's just kind of fun to see this person be that character and I really felt this in a big way while we were while I was watching things for for this panel when I got to the pilot episode of the TV show and I realized that there was no more Christopher Lambert for me to watch. And it was really hard for me. I'm sorry. Go ahead. After Endgame? Uh, No, after I saw the Endgame before the TV show. Oh, okay. okay. So I realized there was no more Christopher Lambert for me. And the, the, the enthusiasm I had to watch episode two was so broken that it took me like three days to continue watching that TV show. <laughs> okay. Well, here I, I understand. Here is my question. And maybe, you know, this, this is probably just revealing my ignorance, but looking at the chronology of these movies, the TV show was like a giant hunk of time in between yes. the movies. Mm-hmm. And that seems to have, be a, where a lot of the fandom was built is that the case and if that is the case did the tv show because fi- i've never seen it did the tv show fix a lot of these things that i've been kind of grouching off about yes okay um there was a magic time when there were three highlander things going on simultaneously and i say magic in quotes but um so the series, <laughs> the series debuted in uh 92 i think and um it was supposed to be a Connor spinoff, but at the last minute it was changed to have a new character who's really fundamentally different than, than Connor anyway, and that was Duncan. And then at the last minute, Christopher Lamb, Lamb, Christophe Lambert decides to, uh, to reprise his role, and, um, and he comes, steps in. And so by the second year, a second season of, of Highlander, you have um, Highlander 3 going. And then shortly around that time, you have the animated series all going at the, at the same, you know, simultaneously. Hmm. So the 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 the, um, the TV show was huge internationally, and it just kept growing. And one and and the thing about the TV show is that it courted an audience that the films never really did, and that was women. So more women were tuning in, and they got into it. And so, but it never really translated into box office for three or four, and certainly not any interest for five. But, um, but yeah, it's it. it uh, the series does address a lot of the questions that that you have about the quickening, about uh, about um, holy ground, um, about just e- even just the, the, some of the basic principles of immortality. Will you regrow a limb if it's severed? Things like that. So yeah. It's a nice hard look at immortality, and I, and I think the and I I only sampled I dabbled I didn't go head first into the series. Because, I watched about five episodes. Yeah, I watched five episodes also. Um, they in is at the end of the first or the beginning of the second they introduced the Watchers. So this is how they 
Had this, uh, first, I think, yeah. this is how they maintain sort of they add new characters, new recurring characters other than just sort of the the crew that's around uh, Duncan Duncan uh, or Mac, as he's known in the series. Uh, the, the Watchers are this secret organization who catalog the the exploits of the immortals, but do not interfere they're kind of like the Federation, I so guess. So like Marco Rubio. Yes. I could do something, but and they are they are trying to keep the uneasy stalemate of I don't I don't know if the uh, David did they ever say that there's they're afraid of what happens if the last immortal actually does get the prize. They want to they want to keep the immortals alive or something. I, that's my thought was that the it's reason contingent of, of watchers there's a, uh, a splinter group that tries to manipulate events. And then the the watcher that becomes the excuse me <clears throat> Duncan's watcher um, takes a very active role in Duncan's life, and then even does things he shouldn't, like gives uh, Duncan information. Because yeah, they're just supposed to be chroniclers; they're not supposed to interfere at all. But they okay, start to- this is again, this is lifted bag and baggage from Marvel's Fantastic Four. They even call the characters the Watchers. Watchers. Yeah. And they're also <laughs> bad at not interfering. Yeah, I know. But you guys, you keep bringing these things up like they're strengths. They're they're it's like complimenting a shoplifter on having good taste. <laughs> I, they could. I I I I the thing that I I mean I'm not going to I'm not going to go to bat for the series. I mean even watching well, the five episodes, yeah. Oh, <laughs> even watching the five the five episodes that I did, um, I got the sense that well, my first and foremost sense is wow, they're really stretching for time here. Like, <laughs> there's you know they they will write a scene that could ha- you know if this was on AMC, the scene would be over in twenty five seconds and but it lasts three and a half minutes because it's a syndicated television show and they've got to deliver twenty episodes or something a year, and so oftentimes. They really, it's really going on a long time, and uh, I think I think there just really was a a glut of syndicated programming at this yeah. point in time in the '90s, and so all you needed was that kicking princes of the universe at the front and the hot guy with the hot bod and the name Highlander, and you could get you could get away with anything. You could have it just any sort of you know mundane plot on mundane well, story I'm, I'm to go along sure with, that and you got six fucking seasons. Yeah. But well, they they did get the real Queen song for the opening credits, which is in their favor. If there was ever a time that I thought we were going to have a shitty cover, that would have been it. <laughs> um, but the um, oh god, don't even get me started. You're hinting my low point. Um, <laughs> the uh, the thing that it kind of got I got out of it more than anything else was just a brief flashback to those days of 1990s first run syndicated TV where there was a guy who was a small crew of people who'd go on adventures and he'd always flash back to something from a past life that he'd had and usually gets into a sword fight at some point. Um, there's a lot of people wearing really baggy sweatshirts of the nineties. I was reminded of, of it's weird. You can look at different, different decades as far as when, how they're represented in, in both film and television and there's a look to a 1970s show. There's a look to a 60s show. But the best I can figure out for the 90s is it's just dated. It just, there's a lot of maroon that people are wearing. <laughs> people don't wear maroon anymore. A lot of pirate shirts. There's a bit where Richie, who's kind of uh, Duncan McLeod's, yeah, his kid sidekick, um, he's decided that he's going to get involved and he's going to go to a biker bar and throw his weight around. And 
He goes there in this weird jacket with this painted thing on the back wearing an American flag bandana tied around his head. And it's played completely straight. But all I can think about is this is the exact same outfit that Charlie Kelly wears on that episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia to be a tough guy. (laughs) Except that's played as a joke. And it's amazing how, and even the opening credits, I mean, it's just clear that people have just discovered that you can make opening credits on a computer. And boy, does it look like they just learned how to make opening credits on a computer. That was improved. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's really, it, it really feels of its time. So I guess as a, the most I got really out of it was it was a bit of a a time capsule of a time. Um, I think that Adrian Paul is, serviceable i think he's better in fight scenes than a lot of people are which is probably why he got hired but there's just something that kind of feels like you know like when they put placeholder music in an early cut of a movie and they're like well we're gonna get the real thing later (laughs) all of you guys beating up on adrian paul clearly never saw mutant x If you really want to see shitty action hero lumbering through a scene like, you know, saying lines like they're carved in capital letters on Mount Rushmore, you really need to see Victor Webster and uh, I can't remember the other guy's name, but doing their Dubro thing in Mutant X because it's just painful. I mean, to me, it's just a... Oh, go ahead, David. Because this is like... In Star Trek Six, when Colonel Worf had that, how can these men be walking defense? I don't, I'm not sure if you're, <laughs> if you're helping or, <laughs> yeah. or making the case for somebody. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, let's let's keep going. I guess we'll talk about four, which is the end game. Which is there are still some moments in here that feel like because it does have Lambert in it that feel like the yeah. old uh, the old style sort of uh, pre-Adrian Paul Highlander. But of course, in this movie, it's the handoff. And so this has to be about where the the brave sacrifice where uh, Connor McLeod's, you know, allows himself to be killed by Mac so he can beat the bad guy at the end. And there, and this is where the movies totally fully lend themselves to the um, having to know about the canon in the TV show because there's this whole plot about the Watcher's the people's trap you know the highlanders the immortals trapping themselves so they don't fight or something again what is the second tagline of the of the franchise fuck it just go with it (laughs) (laughs) and it really is i kind of swear i did i don't know julie and i actually kind of enjoyed that one it it you know no seriously (laughs) it warmed his heart with highlander (laughs) four no seriously it had i mean first of all we didn't have any trouble following along at least no more trouble than we had in the other movies collection of huh wait what <laughs> moment i mean the the that stayed level the curve didn't go up for us at sure. all um and i was kind of okay with the expanded mythology i was okay with that in the second one i i approve of attempting to expand your mythology and build it beyond this just basic idea of a bunch of guys running around with swords killing each other, which is not something to hang a franchise on. I'm sorry, it's just not. It is It is not a good goal for your hero to be the best beheader on the planet. That's that's not really relatable. So to, to build it into a society where there are some immortals that want to play and some that don't, And I really liked the idea of Connor basically saying, you know what? I'm just so fucking done. 
you know, just behead me and go get this guy and I'm out, man. I mean, that's the sense that I got from that plot line. That was right. for Lambert's uh, his insistence. He's like, can we can we just have a scene where I talk about how done I am with this franchise? <laughs> Which, okay. <laughs> for real, the, and have my head be cut off. But honestly, when you have that kind of real life underpinning, it can really strengthen the story. It's a lot like sure. the example that I always use is on the original Saturday Night Live, Belushi used to hate the B sketches. He hated them. So after like the second or third one, the sketches always became about Belushi is a B and he hates it. And it, right. you know, it, it, they worked it in and, and Lambert's weariness with being Connor McLeod. like, all right, fuck it one more time. I'm buying a house or, you know, whatever. <laughs> um, that helps sell it. And I, I truly don't object to Adrian Paul the way that you guys do. I don't, you know, he's, never going to win a prize for being an actor but he he's not bad i mean That's... what's being asked of him he's serious <laughs> have, have we ever wow. you know these are <laughs> seriously these are guys this is this is like complaining that arnold schwarzenegger can't do a nicholas sparks thing you know oh he which, should which now i really want to see <laughs> but but you know come on the, these guys know what their wheelhouse is and um i guess by moving moving and considering that adrian paul's coming off you know years of playing this guy it he seemed to have it locked down i think he can do the physical parts of it better than than um christopher lambert could i mean he's obviously a martial artist he's obviously uh-huh. a guy who this is what he does the acting is just a way to showcase his martial arts i guess my beef with him honestly just comes from the fact that i don't think he's interesting that he does a lot of the things that the lead of a Highlander show should do better than Christopher Lambert did. But Christopher Lambert is so much more, there's something there. There's something strange about him. There's something weird about him. There's something that's unique to him that you don't get with another actor. And it feels like there are a lot of people with Adrian Paul's skill sets that could easily jump into that role. And I wouldn't have felt a difference to the material or the show. I don't think he elevates it at all. He's not bad. I don't want to just, you know, let's all circle around Adrian Paul with sticks and whack him, but it kind of feels like he just gives you the script and nothing else that there's, there's no part of it that he adds to the character of Duncan McLeod. He just feels like generic, 90s action guy all right well let's ask the guy that actually knows david it yes. is that the case over the course of the tv show because the thing lasted for years he must it have brought something seasons, to it. yeah um it's he's well they're very different characters and they're different actors and they were appealing to different audiences right uh-huh. so you know the first movie is the first movie nobody expected it to take off uh Duncan McLeod or uh, Adrian Paul has to, he has to be a little less scary looking, maybe a little less visually interesting because he has to appeal to all these nationalities. He has to appeal to all these markets. So he might be a little blander to some, but he's certainly a more exciting character in that he's more of a swashbuckler kind. Like he loves, Mm. he loves his life a hell of a lot more than, than, uh, than, than, than Connor did. So it's it's a it's it's not really that they were designed to serve different purposes, and I think that's why when they're combined, it 
doesn't quite fit. It's like um, Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan singing together. <laughs> it's 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 cool in concept, but like, are you guys even singing the same song? You know what I mean? It, it's it's a very it, it's very different, and they they just don't quite work together in the long term. Hmm. And that's why I think it, it you know, in the, in the pilot, Connor's just there to like say, give him the thumbs up, and the series is yours, bro. And then in Endgame, it's like you can have everything. <laughs> <laughs> so we, I, I think we we should we should round out our discussion of Adrian Paul by talking about the final, so far the final Highlander feature film ever produced, which was Highlander Five: The Source. The there's, search for Bulgaria. <laughs> there's always a lot of like hyperbole around bad movies, worst movie ever. If I compare this to something like Manos, The Hands of Fate, or Planet, you know, uh, was it Plan Nine from Outer Space? Those have some charm to it. This movie is truly awful, awful, unbearable garbage with no charm to it. It has, I, it, it is. I'm sorry to you guys for making you. Sacrifice ninety minutes of your of your lives. Okay, that was you only guys, ninety minutes. You guys are making fun of me for being mean. I mean, come on. <laughs> this I didn't hate it. That this was you guys totally were casting it though. The, it, Just, you this is easy. You weren't a part of that movie. Like the it is so the it, it is so incomprehensible. The CGI <laughs> the CGI is like a high school project. It is so terrible. And I I hope I. In a bit, in a bit of cosmic Schadenfreude, I hope everyone who tried to make this movie lost money. I really hope they do because he wants to punish for this. I, it's terrible. I thought you were going to go into like a like a Picard first contact speech that ends, and I will see them pay for what they've done. <laughs> it's just awful. I I I don't even. Someone I, I could probably relate what this movie's about, but does someone else want to? take on what it is it's a i can't (laughs) i don't actually know what it was about (laughs) they're a bunch of people that have a lot of conference calls against green screens uh and they decide to go looking for a thing called the source because the planets are in alignment and then they fight this monster that guards the source and he's like a living embodiment of like a system of a down song (laughs) who uses some of the worst super speed special effects I've seen. There are a lot of ways to do special effects for super speed and most of them look awful. And this was an example of what you do when you don't really have a unique idea of doing it and you don't have a lot of money and it just, it feels dated and gray and ugly. And mind you, this is 2007. So this is, after the original trilogy, the prequel, the Star Wars prequel trilogy, where you've determined that, yes, you can do a movie made almost entirely out of CGI and have it be believable. Whereas this is uh, this is a this is a sci fi. This is this is like a sci fi original original movie in the era of like Battlestar Galactica. So it's not as if it was impossible to have something that looked good. And was decent on sci-fi at that time. But I think that this the budget of Battlestar of an episode of Battlestar. Yeah. Black. Well. Yeah. Okay. And again, I didn't really research this so much. We only watched the fifth one last night because, frankly, we'd been putting it off. Oh, yes. But because <laughs> you wanted to save the to, to oh, savor it. Were you guys right? saving it for your anniversary? <laughs> <laughs> Defrosted that wedding cake. And <laughs> 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 The weird 
weird thing is that it's almost as romantic as the first one and it's it's misconceived weirdness with the the psychic girl the ex oh yeah um Mm. although again none of that made sense no i don't don't really know why anything happened well that's see and this is again i i i will freely grant you that I'm an old school meat and potatoes. If the plot doesn't make any sense at all, I'm out after, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour. If I'm suddenly sitting up going, wait, what the fuck? You know, you've pretty much lost me. It's very rare that a movie can surmount that just on sheer charm with me, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I guess that I don't love the first one as much as you guys do. Yeah, it's it's a um, charm. And it's and a- um but, you know, if it's charmless and stupid, you've really got nowhere to go. <laughs> and and the the CGI execution didn't bother me. The CGI use bothered me. I'm I'm so done with heroes going after the big glowy white thing. Yeah. I'm just done, you know? And when I saw that, it's like, Oh fuck, is this where that came from? What, what year was it? Who, who did that? Who is responsible for the white thing going up into the sky? I don't know. Oh, hard to think of the first It predates Avengers. I'm sure. Cause it Avengers just, God, big. it's just everywhere now. Hmm. And it's yeah. like your go-to thing for guys who can't write. <laughs> David, where do you come down on Highlander 5, the end? It, it made me sad yeah. on so many levels. Because it was, well, yeah, like, like, uh, like I think, was it you or Mike who said earlier it was supposed to be one of a trilogy? And it just, it's just a fart of a movie. You know what I mean? It just, <laughs> it's just sad. I, and there, it's, one of, it, it, it's one of those movies that had a, a leak. Um leaked it, it was it was uh, it had there was like a russian version or a russian cut or something that, that had been released and that let the sales out of everybody oh, <laughs> it, it man. everyone's sales because it, people found it they found a way to watch it or buy it and they're like what is this and then it finally had its premiere on the sci-fi channel at like 4 p.m on a saturday afternoon or something <laughs> oh the golden hour. <laughs> And everybody just cried. You know, it, much like Duncan's katana, I was shattered. Oh. <laughs> you fought on holy ground, obviously. Um, so I think we're getting really close to getting to high point, low point. But um, the runner up here, the real, I think the real oddity, Highlander 2 is the oddball. For me, the, uh, the, the strangest thing, and I did not know about this until Mike told me like two weeks ago, that in the same year as they did The Source... They also made Highlander, the search, is it Search for Vengeance or The Search for Vengeance? Search for Vengeance. Which was also a Davis Panzer production, but it was a Japanese anime movie. I guess you would call it an OAV. It's an original animated movie um, where they have another McLeod, a Colin McLeod, who is also a Scottish Highlander, also an immortal, and also has another bad guy named Marcus, who is uh, another immortal that is his, his uh, rival throughout the centuries done in a you know in this sort of a traditional japanese anime post-apocalyptic future and it is it it is it's it's certainly it's certainly better than the source it certainly fails at making something that's intriguing because it's the same it is the same formula as you've had since the very beginning i i as being a fan of a certain slice of japanese anime i think it's funny because this 
as a, as almost a direct retread of the Fist of the North Star series, which is about oh, yeah. about a guy who's nearly invincible who walks around the wasteland and beating up the weird overpowered mutant guys and saving the little people and letting them have their revolutions. It's like the same exactly the same sh- the same show, but it's it had its it had its own little spark of flavor, but it was it's proof that just making something an anime can't make the concept better. You know, it has to be it has to be something amazing, a good concept and can be served well by the, by what Japanese animation does well, and some of it is okay. It's just nothing special about it. There's nothing great about it. I wouldn't have watched it if it weren't weren't Highlander attached yeah. to the front of it. I think they were counting on that. <laughs> I I couldn't find a copy of it anywhere. Oh, I and I did search. Um, I think that it probably had a better idea behind it than most of the sequels did, which is that let's just start from scratch as if this is the first Highlander movie. And this guy's named McLeod because he has to be named McLeod and he's going right. to battle with a guy across the centuries and just take it back to something simple. Just scrape away everything that had been sort of built up, built, get rid of all the expectations. It's not about bringing back an actor. It's not about bringing back anything, but just kind of make it as if it's a remake. And I, I can respect doing that and say, hey, let's see if I can find something new. Is there any gas left in this tank? And it's sort of strange that it would come out in the same year as the source because that sort of splits apart what a lot of these big franchises do nowadays. Like I know when J.J. Abrams' company, uh, Bad Robot, basically had the, the, the license to sort of make a Star Trek movie from you know Paramount and CBS, they had something in the contract saying that we don't want any competing visions of Star Trek on TV for a few years while we're building this. And it seems like they didn't try for that with with um with Highlander at all and I'm not really sure why they would put out two things in the same year that are going in radically different directions and it's clear they wanted to use both of them to build something that would continue and I just I think they ran out of people willing to shell out money for this it's kind of like if after Star Trek Into Darkness they'd made another movie like Star Trek Into Darkness and you just get these diminishing returns until there's there's nothing left, and then you just hear Highlander. And I know, Greg, you were mentioning this on Twitter, Julie's reaction to the, the word Highlander now. <laughs> Which is? She makes vomit faces. <laughs> yeah. And she oh. was the one that was the fan. Oh, wow. She was. She is one of the women that David was talking about. She, She's she, an Adrian Paul She person. shouldn't have opened up the Pandora's box of sequels. She really shouldn't, but, you know, yeah. my wife loves me a lot. And, uh, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'll go see something like Christopher Robin with her. And, you know, this is what being married is. It's sometimes true. you do her stuff, and sometimes she does your stuff. I'm a little bitter sometimes because I know. It feels fact, like you skipped your turn. <laughs> well, no, it's, 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 it's because I know Julie enjoys my stuff more than I enjoy her stuff most of the time. Ah. You know, she really gets into coming with me to Comic-Con and, and uh, watching all these shitty movies. And she's more invested in Babylon 5 now than I am. We're finally getting around to that after mm. years and years. Awesome. Um, but uh, anyway, not to go on and on. Um, so I, we, could, we could spend the time talking about the animated series uh, or the Raven, but I don't think anyone bothered with those. I watched, <laughs> so, I watched the first episode of the animated I, series. I did watch the first episode of the animated series. I also did not watch like, the second. Also a lot like Dune, uh, strangely enough. There was it reminded in me it. of Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Yeah. In a weird way, we have a post-apocalyptic world where these weirdly designed monster characters and then I'm getting into a sword fight in this weird city that a lot of it looks like, you know, 
but not as well animated as wizards, and that's kind of damning praise. But and I don't think they sho- they showcase. I don't think there were any decapitations in the animated series. So no, they they really get that around. really because yeah. I I did not watch it. I just read about it, and the the what I read was something of the like. Surprisingly, it was very violent for an animated show that was directed at blah blah blah. You know, and uh, I, I mean, think people did die. Yeah, right? people die off camera. Oh, well, they do in that okay. That's... But but it's sort of implied that they died. It doesn't tell them that they... It's, it tries to get around as much as you possibly can to actually keep the same premise of Highlander. Okay, so does that make me weird that I wouldn't feel cheated by not seeing a beheading? Well, I don't feel cheated. Oh. I don't <laughs> not when that's what you're coming to Highlander for. I, I wouldn't say that I... I don't feel cheated by not getting a decapitation. I feel cheated by the production value. Hmm. Okay. And the fact that it yes. feels... That's fair. It feels just they like... They skip about every four frames. It's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> yeah. It's Oh, it's bad. It's not... It's the cheapest looking animation. It's the worst um, voice acting. It feels like something that is made by a company and a franchise that has depleted every last piece of, of goodwill, money, uh, popularity. It's just... It feels so... Well, Dead. the funny thing is this trajectory that you're describing with Highlander has happened a lot. It happened with the Salkine, Ilya Salkine, the Superman franchise. That's true. You go from Superman, the movie to, you know, the canon films quest for peace or whatever it was. And then you go to Superboy, the first run syndication series, which, oh my God, it makes Highlander, the source look like the fucking... <laughs> Citizen Kane in terms of production values. It's just insane how cheap that show looked. And it's just, you know, literally just milking every last dime. Another one, uh, Charles Band, Trancers. Hmm. Trancers was kind of an interesting little movie with Tim Thomerson that inexplicably got five sequels. Um, That's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and written by people that I... uh, Peter David wrote four and five. I like Peter David's work. He's written a lot of good stuff. Trancers was not one of those Hmm. things. I wanted to give David one last swing if you wanted to talk about the (laughs) the animated incarnations of, uh, of Highlander before we move on. Oh, it's they're terrible. They do have a Connor appearance, and um, the way that what? Yeah, there's it. Yes, uh, <laughs> Connor McCloud is in it in one episode, but it it, it centers around um, Quentin, and uh, there is a there's a Ramirez character, but it's not like it's not the it's not the same as character as a as Sean Connery's multiple versions of Ramirez. Um, it it's it seems like it 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 has its. Uh, Visual origins in Zeist. It very yes. much looks like Zeist. Yeah. Um, but uh, no, it's it's it wasn't good. Yeah. Well, the last question before high point low point is: I want to talk about this. Um, what is our sense for this sequel reboot of Highlander that we're hearing about from John Wick director Chad Stahelski? I mean, if you think about these uh, these sort of sequel soft reboots of old movies, I think of like Death Wish. Conan the Barbarian, RoboCop, Clash of the Titans, Red Dawn, Point Break, like all of these. Ben Hur, Evil Dead. You know these where they they're they're taking beloved, mostly cult. A lot of these are cult film movies, um, and trying to sort of spin them into soft reboot. And even though I love the John Wick movies, I just I'm apprehensive about the idea of having a Highlander movie because it can't you can't re you can never redo that sort of that magic. 
nope. that serendipity of the first one. And the only thing you can do is do the thing where you have nostalgia porn. You just you try to play the same beats. Maybe you have a character actor. Maybe Christopher Lambert comes back and does a cameo as some character that's not McCloud or whatever. Probably a photograph of Sean Connery on a wall at some point. <laughs> You're not getting him back. <laughs> but, well, yeah. is, is your question... How do we feel yeah, about this? Yeah, how do you feel about it? I'm open to it because for me, these things are always, always, always on a case-by-case basis. That's, that's fair. If you that's had fair. said to me, a child of the 70s, that Ron Moore was going to remake Battlestar Galactica, a show that is synonymous with incredibly shitty science fiction that right. is pasted together from bits of other movies that are much better, I would have said, well, clearly Ron Moore, you know, is being blackmailed. <laughs> and and it turned out to be great. Yeah. It turned out to be great. Um, the, the list of movies you named, I was okay with the Jason Momoa, Conan the Barbarian. I was on board for that. Um, I say that as a guy who grew up reading Robert E. Howard and Jason Momoa is much more my Conan than Arnold Schwarzenegger. Sure. You should get that another is the, chance That is the sure. picture I had in my head. On the other hand, Jonah Hex is something that I adored. I liked Josh Brolin. That should have been great. And it was just painful. It was painful. Mm-hmm. I feel about the Jonah Hex movie the way that Mike feels about the Star Wars prequels. I mean, it was that level of you are you are tainting something that I love so badly <laughs> that I'm losing my affection for the original and I may never get it back. You oh, know? Uh, that it is was, that is actually the worst thing about a bad sequel is to taint the taint the know. original. So with Highlander, I th- I think they have a really good shot at doing something good. I think the key to it is to just fucking start over. Yeah, if of course. You, if you want to give Christopher Lambert a cameo, okay, that's fine. Oh, you he's throw, Ramirez. Throw him, throw, <laughs> throw him a bone. Throw the fandom a bone. But, you know, the idea of fandom nervousness has zero credibility with me because mm. fandom nervousness is always wrong almost always wrong we talked about this with you know the the superhero casting thing where everybody's got this roiling fan rage against so-and-so being the new james bond or the new batman or whatever until they see it until they see it you know everybody was freaking out you know about tom holland as spider-man because come on he's a brit what the fuck you know (laughs) we want donald glover we want you know and then it comes out and everybody loves him Right, right. You know, okay. let's see it. Fair enough. Ledger is a joker. Fair enough. What about yeah. you, David? Uh, can it can it ever re? Can you ever recapture that the the beauty, the splendor of the first one? Um, I would have to go with. I think if they just tried a different tact altogether, and and not um, different tack altogether, and and not try to just remake the first movie beat yeah. by beat. Um, like I said, it was just just an amazing recipe that could never be duplicated again. And I think the music of queen has a lot to do with it. Um, at least for me anyway, I think, I think there's, I think there's a lot of good there. I think maybe if they went to, uh, Greg Wyden's original script, which was a lot more thoughtful and darker, um, than what we ended up getting. Uh, for example, Connor had been married multiple times, had multiple kids, like everyone dies around him. So, any emotional investment he has and he can have kids. So he outlives his children. It's hmm. pretty sad. Um, 
And then uh, the, the Kurgan was just really just a force of, not a force of evil, but just like a, a, a locomotive of pain. There wasn't, it wasn't quite, it wasn't played quite as cheek, as cheekily as, as it ended up, hmm. as, as it ended up coming. That, that's, a, that, that's actually something that um, um, Clancy Brown has, has, talks about often is that he really liked the original version of the script where it was a lot more serious a take on Kurgan than what happened. Um, so maybe if they did something like that, if they took it, Took it there, and I, I'm sure it would be stretched out over three movies just to get to the <laughs> to the to the end, or to to find out what the prize is. There can be only um, three. <laughs> right. They'll never stop um, there. But uh, yeah, you know, everyone deserves their own Highlander. I'm, it, I give it a shot. Nice. Okay. And with that, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with High Point, Low Point. Allegedly, soccer is a beautiful game. It is when you know what's going on. That's the problem. MLS is 20 years old, and people are still shocked to hear that there's an American soccer league. That's why you and I are talking about it. This is a discussion of American soccer for nerds and beginners. It's a good first step if a crippling soccer addiction is something that's missing from your life. Join the club. Celebrate the 20th anniversary of MLS by actually following the season. Hands-Free Football. New episodes every week at handsfreefootball.com. And we're back on our Highlander panel. We are going with high point, low point. That's where we go to the top of the mountain, the bottom of the barrel. I want to start with you, David Gutierrez. What is your low point for Highlander? That's tough because there are many. (laughs) No, and even as a fan, I can admit that. But I think I'm going to go with um, the source. Mm -hmm. That was just just a series of bad choices and and this is in a series and this is out of a franchise that you know suffered some of the worst money woes story woes um actors just leave you're threatening to leave the set it survived a van peebles appearance <laughs> but, but ultimately it was it was uh just like the worst sense of storytelling that's that's my low point the source it's it's it should be the sore Highlander. The sore. <laughs> uh, okay, I think I'll just go next. I was go. I really was going to jump on the Adrian Paul bandwagon and and uh, and sort of give him that. But I, um, I guess mine is tied to yours. I just rethought this. I actually think that the lowest point for me is in Highlander: The Source, where midway through the movie they're all deciding to go. They're they're the, him and the Watcher and the other guy. They have this slow motion walk. Yes, cool walk. That oh. looks like Reservoir Dogs. Oh god! But the song that's playing. Oh god! Is oh god! Princes of the Universe by a cover by who knows who, and it oh, is god. it is emblematic of everything <laughs> that's wrong. Everything that's wrong with trying to redo the magic of the original because the cover oh. is terrible, the movie is terrible, yes. and it just yes. reminds you of what you don't have anymore. It reminds you that you want to be watching something that's better. That they're just hacks. And that you would much rather just go back and re-experience something because it'll never be that good, with at least with this cast of people that are trying to make it. So that was my low point, Princes of the Universe in cover cover song. Oh, God. see, this is playing exactly into what my low point was. My one was the source, but that was the moment where 
I had gone into doing prep for this episode for like a month and a half, and <laughs> I spent wow. yeah we spent a lot yeah time we spent a lot of, there's a lot of things to go through here but I've been thinking about Highlander for like two months now and I had spent so much of that time already readying my low point for Highlander to the Quickening I was I had written it out before I had watched all the movies and gone okay. Okay, I really want to think about how bad this is. And I was just not prepared. And the very moment that Casey just talked about, the slow-mo walk, when that song hit, I went from being, oh, God, this is embarrassing, to I was angry. And I'm not, I, I dislike things fairly frequently, but I don't get angry at movies the way that people seem to on the Internet, where they act like, you know, this movie was not good in said franchise, so I'm going to act like it kicked my dog. It's not me. I don't, there's a limit to how mad I can get at entertainment, but when that Princes of the Universe song started up, I think I actually out loud, alone in this room, said, oh, fuck you. <laughs> I got, it's just like, suddenly I'm Freddie Mercury's overprotective older brother. <laughs> and I did not expect it. I, it's like, so I have to say this Highlander, the source, this movie is like filmed in Eastern Europe, mostly against green screens. Occasionally you have a scene with cars on fire in the background. It's shot through this either like a gray filter or a blue filter or a sepia tone filter. <laughs> Everything is so aggressively serious and joyless and there's no charm to it. And it just feels like it's trying so hard to be cool all the time. And it is dated so badly. The villain looks like he... Stole his costume from Hot Topic, and <laughs> he he looks like a guy who should be like a mascot for Guar or something. <laughs> he there's like nothing left in this series. The characters are always talking against green screens on in this super cool sounding dialogue, and they're always uh, you know doing conference calls, and it. I hated it. I hated, it. and it, it, I mean, I was just like. Oh, God, this is embarrassing. I hope nobody walks in on me watching it. But when that song hit, I got mad. I got mad in a way I didn't expect. And I'm like, I got to throw out all this shit that I wrote about Thailander 2 now. And because at least that was interesting. Again, I love crazy-ass sequels that don't make sense on paper. Yeah, we're going to have a movie where the Star Trek crew goes back to modern-day San Francisco and saves whales in a fish-out-of-water comedy. Yeah, we're going to do Gremlins 2 with the Hulk Hogan cameo. Yeah, we're going to have uh, Bill and Ted meet a Martian. You know, fuck it, whatever. You know, the sequels are mostly bad anyways. We might as well make one that people still talk about in 10 years. But this is exactly the kind of, like, over serious gray garbage and it didn't even have you know again not to continue to beat on this guy but adrian paul bores me and sorry david but there's just you know there's nothing here for me to grab onto i mean the sure the original is not a masterpiece and it's this disparate gumbo of varying contradictory things that somehow works despite all of the things that don't but it's like if you took out all of those things that do have charm and all those things that are interesting or weird or epic or are queen then what you'd be left with is the fucking source yeah. it's so 
it's such a what I would expect someone to do in a shitty fan film that is by some fan that misses the point and actual thing of their franchise and just goes, I'm going to be awesome. So low point Highlander, the source. You don't like the kids, kids, Bob version of princess of universe <laughs> by somebody's cousin's band. No. <laughs> All right, Greg, can you drudge up only one low point for Highlander? Let's try one. Well, first of all, <laughs> You guys have all been meaner about this franchise that you profess to love than I have. First that's, of all, let's just okay, get fair, that out on the record. Enough. That's debatable. Uh, <laughs> but all right, here's yeah. my one low point, and it's the recurring one. I want the movie that was almost there. I think there's a wonderful story to be told about this underground society of immortals that are cursed to to love on a very ephemeral level that can never form real attachments whose underpinnings to their entire fucking social order is killing each other i think there's a great story to be told there i I don't think it should be sewn together from bits of other movies that are better i want to see that actual story and i was braced for it at least three times at least three Mm. different times watching these five movies i was i was thinking okay this is going to be the one where they really go there and then they didn't so Mm. that's kind of my low point i that's why i'm very welcome to the idea of the john wick guy starting fresh he if nothing else that guy has shown that he understands internally consistent world building, which is what you have to have to yeah, my just, way of thinking yeah. to do this properly. That's what I want. Fair enough. And I didn't get it. All right. Well, now that we've uh, we've aired our grievances, let's drag ourselves out of the gutter here and let's go to high point. I think we should do Mike first. Mike, what was your high point? What's your high point for Highlander? Oh, fucking queen. Oh. Is there any other answer? I don't think you can yeah. overstate uh, how important queen is to this franchise, to the original the movie. Planet, Mike. Yes. <laughs> to human culture as a general concept that queen really is Highlander in a way that you don't really get for a lot of other movies. Sometimes with other movies you get, you mentioned before, there's a song like, or maybe two songs like Aerosmith is a big part of the movie Armageddon or <laughs> Celine Dion is a big part of Titanic. And, you know, Huey Lewis in the news is a big part of back to the future. I mean, these are things that you associate with it, but they're kind of like moments in the movie where queen is throughout the entirety of Highlander. When Connor McLeod goes into that bar after he's been let out of the police station, that's a Queen song playing over the jukebox. When um, the Kurgan is going on a mad tear through um, New York City, having kidnapped Brenda, uh, the the version of New York, New York blasting over his radio is by Queen. Uh, the love theme to the movie is Queen. The end credits theme is Queen. The opening credits is Queen. They incorporate Queen into the score. And it it's married so well. Um, it, it doesn't probably hurt that Queen is my favorite band of all time. I don't really talk about music that much, but I, what I really love about them, having having done this, is that there is a an amazing range to Freddie Mercury's voice that I don't think 
other humans should probably attempt. That's why the cover in the source is so bad. And it's why I cringe whenever I hear the beginning of a queen song at karaoke. Cause I'm like, Oh God. Oh God. Yeah, here bother. we go. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to fail. It's just a question of how badly, um, what I really love is, and again, I lack the music vocabulary to fully talk about this, but they have this ability to do things that are like these operatic ballads, like Bohemian Rhapsody. They did a folk song about special relativity uh, oh, called 39, which <laughs> is a great song. I mean, this is a band that has amazing range there. They can do just about everything. And then that the stuff they do goes to the just heights that, you know, Freddie Mercury is the greatest rock vocalist of all time. And I, I will fight people over that. <laughs> um, and then with uh, guitarist Brian May, who is also a, has a doctorate in astrophysics and is, by the way, qualified to be part of, of, uh, the Hong Kong Cavaliers with, uh, what's his name? Um, Buckaroo Bonsai. Buckaroo Bonsai. He is totally qualified to be part of that crew. Um, he he's a huge sci-fi nerd. So there's an element of that. And the thing I love is that even the songs that they did in this were written by various members of the band. Yes. Um so everyone is taking a bat, a swing at the bat with with Highlander. Everyone is taking their time with it. Like I believe Who Wants to Live Forever is written by Brian May. I think Princes of yes. the Universe is a Freddie Mercury song. I mean, everyone is kind of doing their own thing. And what I love about this is it's led me to a proposal for my version of the remake that I don't think anyone's talking on. I really want to I want to shoot for the moon full on Bill and Ted's bogus journey, um, Star Trek for Gremlins 2. I want to go for broke and do something that nobody is talking about. There is a growing subgenre of jukebox musicals. That have been happening in cinema, I guess the, the latest, for, I mean, it was Jersey Boys was one. The Mamma Mia movies are another one where there's just, let's build a, a musical around a band's music. You know what we have with, with the music of Queen? We don't just have the music of Queen, we have the music of Queen about Highlander. <laughs> so what I am talking about... A Highlander the musical? Highlander it's, it's the... in the works. Yes. In the works. What? I'm not lying. No, it is? Oh, it yeah. better be. <laughs> this is exactly what needs to happen. Highlander, the jukebox musical, would encapsulate all of this. And if you're going to remake it and if you're going to wallow in nostalgia, fucking wallow. Do it for real and really go there. So I got to say, Queen, my high point. I fucking love them. Uh, I, I, I'll have I, to... God bless you, Mike Gillis. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, I'll just take it next because the theme song, the main theme by Queen was mine. I think it was one of the first cassette tapes I bought with my own money was It's Kind of Magic. I've listened to it hundreds of times. Of the myriad elements that make Highlander better than the sum of its parts, uh, we'll have words later. We'll recap. The theme song, Princes of the Universe, by one of Rock's greatest bands. From the ear, It's the opening credits. The first note is like Freddie Mercury with his voice doubled. It's like him. It's distorted, and he's twice in it, right? right? It's, not, it's not actually one. And then... Here we are, and then da 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 da. You've got the drums that come in, and then the wailing, the Brian May's guitars coming after it. Like the sense that it's building you up for something that is so fucking awesome in the first fifteen seconds of what's on screen, just through music alone, just over the credit sequence. Um, 
it's I, like I said before, I think it's probably one of the best, rec- most recognized rock movie themes that there actually is. Just the incredible dynamics of the song, the sort of rising and falling volume, and the operatic chorus elements m- match the sort of epic scope of the movie. It's, uh, you know, I think even Mulcahy himself said that he thought that, that, mo- that his movie belonged more to Freddie Mercury than it did to himself. Oh, wow. So... For me, it's Princes of the Universe that makes uh, that makes it up. So, Greg, high point for uh, Highlander series. <coughs> well, me. you know, maybe this makes me one of those women in the demographic that uh, David was referring to. But my high point is the romance in the first movie between Christopher Lambert and his first wife, his Scottish wife. Oh, Heather. 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 I, Bonnie lo- Lass. I love that. I the the part where she's the little old wrinkled lady and he's looking at her just like she's 20 years old that fucking sold me. Hmm. I love that. That's what I want. I want the movie about the the culture of the immortals of the guys that are reaching for humanity when they know they can't have it. I think that's a great fucking story. Hmm. I think throwing that away over a bunch of music video crap is the reason that's that was my low point. But the times that we saw that idea is my high point, and with Heather was the best version of that. Yeah, that's my high point. Cool, Greg. Every time you say something, I think I like. I feel like maybe you said something I don't. I don't remember. <laughs> 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 but uh, if you like that, I would recommend then the. Um, Season two episode called The Darkness, where Duncan deals with a similar problem. Awesome. Okay. D- David, what is your high point for uh, Highlander? Well, first, Casey, I just want to say I loved your, your high point. And when I'm done marrying Mike, I will marry you. Because <laughs> Princess of the Universe. By the way, did you see the video to Princess of the Universe? Because you have, and this is my high point, you have Freddie Mercury... Lock, he's got, you know, he's, he always had like the half mic stand. Mm-hmm. That was his thing. Locking swords with Christophe Lambert. Oh, really? I, yes. uh, I've never seen it. Wow. That's... Yeah. And to me, that is, there you go. That's rock and roll. Christopher <laughs> <laughs> Lambert, Freddie Mercury. And they, they, it's, it's just, it is, it's, it, you know, it, it is a soul singing. It is, it is mm. a birth of beauty and amazement. And that, it, I can, I could be in the worst mood. You could murder my mother. You put that video on, I'm back up. Because that is that is that is the that is the most beautiful thing in Highlander I've ever seen. My favorite group and my favorite movie coming together. Awesome. Well, I think I didn't sell you on that either. No, I, no, no. <laughs> I think I think all of our listeners are just gonna fire up YouTube right now and watch it because I know I'm gonna do it after we're done. It's pretty great. <laughs> well, I want to for all of us at the Radio versus the Martians family, I wanna thank you, David Gutierrez. Thank you so much for being with us and uh talking about Highlander with us today. Um if anyone wants to if any of our listeners wanna know more about what you do, where can we point them to learn more about your stuff, David? Um I am exec- executive producer of a podcast called uh, Pod Dylan that's on the uh, Fire and Water Network with starring Rob Kelly, who's, who did a show with you guys a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, we, he's a friend of the show. Yeah, friend of the show, Rob <laughs> Kelly. So I, um, I'm on that occasionally, but I think that's probably one of the best shows on the internet that isn't this one. Oh, um, buttering <laughs> us up. Keep it coming. <laughs> um, 
I, I, I appear maybe every three or four months on Film and Water, Rob Kelly's other show. You can catch me on that. And we did talk about Highlanders specifically, um, episode 91. So please check that out. Um, and I do just want to say, if you are really interested in, in Highlander things, there's a great podcast called Highlander Rewatched, where uh, three guys from Philadelphia started at Highlander the movie, and, they've, um, and they're going to watch everything, everything associated with the Highlander. So oh. right now they're on season three of the series, and they've talked about the first three movies. Oh, those are brave men. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Highlander 1 took like six or seven episodes alone. It so, would have and their to. episodes are about two hours long. So <laughs> Damn. Well, thanks again, David. Uh, we, we hope to have you on later for future episodes. Uh, Greg Hatcher, once again, he's you're our, uh, you're our Alec Baldwin to SN, SNL. You're our most frequent, <laughs> most frequent guest host. Thank you so much for being here, Greg. What are you working on? It's always a privilege and pleasure. Let's see. Right now... Um, I am doing a lot of, uh, what they call new pulp mm -hmm. stories for a publishing house called Airship 27. The last time I was here, I was in the middle of a novel that was then called Hell Canyon Blues. That book is out now. It's Ooh. called The Silver Riders, and I'm actually shamelessly pleased with it. Awesome. Um, Where can uh, what, what website can we go to to find it? Amazon.com. Amazon I have an author page on Amazon, and Silver Riders is there. I've also, this is not like my name project or anything, but I am a contributor to it. Um, the MX series of new Sherlock Holmes stories. Oh, nice. They are this is a series of anthologies that benefits uh, the Stepping Stones Special Needs School in Britain. It's Arthur Conan Doyle's old home. It's now a special needs school. Awesome. And David Markham edits these giant anthologies of just new Sherlock's they're not not updated Sherlock not Sherlock Holmes meets Oscar Wilde not Sherlock <laughs> Holmes meets Dracula it's just Holmes and Watson fighting crime in Victorian London old school Doyle style stuff and I'm thrilled with it because I get to be in the same book as guys like Nicholas Meyer and Leslie oh wow Harris. yeah That's this great. is what I'm saying and that was just a huge thrill for me even though I don't get money um because it's a benefit um I the books are a showcase and I'm so thrilled to have been invited to be part of that and uh I think the story was okay. It's it's not my favorite Sherlock that I did, but uh you know, it's all right. All I don't right. I don't feel like I shamed myself in front of Nicholas Meyer. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Greg, Greg, can I pitch you something? Sure. Sherlock meet, meets uh Connor. You know, I would I would totally have done that as an episode of the show. I think one of the weaknesses of a <laughs> seriously, seriously, one of the weaknesses of the movie series is here's this huge canvas. You can do Connor McCloud anywhere over the course of 400 years and we always go to the dystopian urban thing. Yeah. We did low point. Yes. <laughs> just saying <laughs> alright well we're gonna have to leave it there but uh, Mike also as always oh, thanks God. for thanks for backing me up and saying the same things that I did oh I enjoyed great parts <laughs> of preparing for this oh and an extra special thanks to our episode sponsors Larry Brunswick Margaret King Tim Batson Zuri Russell and Sterling Taylor if you want to become an episode sponsor please check us out on RadioVersusTheMartians.com or Patreon.com slash RadioVersusTheMartians thanks so much guys we'll see you next time mm -hmm.
Radio vs. the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Val Verde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Doran, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Dan Lombardo. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at radioversusthemartians.com.